This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hello, 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 family. Hi, Nubians. How are you? How's everyone? Nubia, how's everybody? How you doing, Professor Hunter? I am. I'm good. You know, I did my morning sauna, so I'm, <laughs> I'm cooking from the inside, getting all Wonderful. the toxins out. Uh, and we need to get the toxins out because I feel like we're. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yes. Help help us to um and I just want to jump in first of all. Uh good morning. Thank you for your time and your oh no your brilliance no. and your genius. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of things cooking, you know, since election day and beyond, and the question keeps swirling. Uh for me, how how do we how do we stay? But we've been here before. So yesterday in my, in my class, we talked about, you know, Virginia and what oh. what created, you know, the environment for Glenn Youngkin to win. And, you know, we talked about critical race theory and I played that clip of the man who couldn't define it. You know, um, maybe I should just call it up because it was so instructive. Uh, the Virginia voter that uh, was asked about critical race theory. Let me see if I can find it really quickly because it, it, it had like seven million views by the time. Yep, here it is. OK, so I'm going to play it. I'm going to play it. Um, it's it's almost as if we uh, wrote that script for him and gave it to him from what we talked about or what about a year ago. Anyway. <laughs> All right, I'm going to play it. What's the most important issue in the governor's race here in Virginia? Getting back to the basics of teaching children, not teaching them critical race theory. And, uh, and uh, what is critical race theory? Well, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it because I don't understand it that much, but it's something that I don't, what little bit that I know I don't care for. And, and what have you heard that, that you don't, well, that you I'm don't not, like? Well, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't have that much knowledge on it, but okay. it's something that I'm not, that I don't care for. So I took my class through, this is not the first, second, or third, or fourth time we've been here, right? I went back to the welfare queen yeah. uh, that got yeah. Reagan elected. I pulled up the Washington Post article. We read it, uh, how that trope of a, you know, a woman taking advantage of the system and all you hardworking Americans are giving your taxpayer dollars so that welfare queens can have fur coats and Cadillacs. And of course, she was a black woman, Linda Taylor. And then I took them to Willie Horton that got George, uh, that got, um, yeah, George Bush's father elected. Um, and um, and I played the ad that, you know, painted Dukakis. And I was like, does the president even have control over your personal, you know, criminal justice system? Okay, like, let's start thinking. We're, we're you know, what is the role of the president? Right. But that ad made people show up, but it also fed into what they already fear, you know, and it's all a lie. Then I took them back to Nixon and Ehrlichman. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I read the quote, you know, we can't make it illegal to be black or to be anti-war, but we can flood these communities with heroin and marijuana and then make that illegal and then go in and start mm -hmm. taking out their leaders. This came out of the mouth of the architect of Nixon's domestic plan. Then I took them back to birth of a nation because, you know, the notion that somehow uh, black men in particular are raping your women. And I said, I sit here with this cafe skin five generations in and something happened. Something happened. Some rape happened somewhere. Cause I should be, 
dark, dark, dark black, you know, coming from Africa. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, because Africa has all of the rainbow, but I'm saying something happened here. And then I said, let me pull up the first seven black people, black men, because that was all that who could could vote back then, elected to Congress and, you know, hiring rebels. And so I pulled up the pictures and they're sitting there, you know, there's a famous picture of them all sitting, looking so stately with their beautiful dress clothes on. And then I took them to Birth of a Nation that had those men in Congress with their shoes off, eating watermelon and chicken and spitting seeds and being lazy. And I said, ask yourself, uh, lazy people, would you build a whole entire nation and economy for 400 years on lazy people? <laughs> so, yes. so we had a conversation and there's only one black child in, my, in that particular mm. class. Um, But I said, you have to start to question, like, why was that even put out? And why did the president of the United States screen that movie and call it one of the greatest movies? It still is in the top 100 movies of all time. D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, not Nate Nate Parker's. But I was, you know, here we are. Once again, they used a boogeyman called CRT to get people to vote. But I feel like folk already wanted to do that. And they just wanted an excuse. So now what do we do? is the question you know we st- stay saving this in this country we stay showing up we stay voting more than anybody else and i'm tired I'm tired of course of course um well i guess we gotta ask the first question we always ask if we're going to apply an african studies framework to it which is of course who is we <laughs> I mean, clearly you you created a we and create a we in conversation with this majority non-black group of students that you happen to have in this one class. Uh, was there was did, did the beginnings of a we begin to form out of that conversation? Um, you know, it's interesting because in that class, I have power. Mm hmm. So the dynamics, and it's it is interesting being a black person in power, you know, and I, and I find myself more and more in these places where I'm making decisions for a, a lot of people in terms of their, their pay, their livelihood, you know, their grades. Yes. And I find it an enormous responsibility. Like I, I don't play games with people's lives. So I want to make sure, you know, in my mind, everybody's going to get an A if you show up because the, the education is about this discourse and it was it was so wonderful at the end of the class one young man white guy stayed back and he said you know professor usually i'm chasing my gpa but in this class i'm just so happy to be learning things that i've never learned before and i'm not and i was like that's that's when you know right that's when you know because that's what this system is supposed to be igniting Folks, so I, I feel like there's a we, but I have no way to really measure it because I'm in a position of power where they don't have any option but to pretend at least to be engaged in the conversation. And a lot of them were engaged, so you know I don't know if they were doing it for for the for the grade or doing it because they really felt motivated to have a discussion and start really examining how they've been indoctrinated. And then, of course, you know I had them read Ed Bernays's propaganda, and we referenced how. You know, they use the media once again. The media, what are they focus? Why is the media focusing on CRT if it's not a thing? Like, we have to start really like, why is this constantly being pushed out on these airwaves and in these newspapers if it's not a real thing? If it's a legal construct that is mostly taught in law school, none of your kids are going to be indoctrinated with CRT. What we're talking about is history. 
right? That's right. And, and so, you know, I, I don't know who he is, but, um, and I appreciate you asking that question because I, I struggle. Now let's talk about this and, and let's, 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 let's have a bit of this conversation and, and the Nubians, you know, we are both and all of us, Urias, Carl, the whole family, um, Dr. Amin and that Maroon's medical chest, that's going to save some lives. Come but, on. <laughs> I mean, we're all so grateful for every person day by day, week by week, who joins Narrative and joins Nubia, because this community is is changing even as it's growing by leaps and bounds, and it's changing all of us. And so if, if, if and when you go back and look at the beginning of our arc, our Saturday arc, I think you will see the growth and the, the changing. You know, there'll be there's Saturdays where we do a lot of text work with a lot of books and articles and detail and then there are Saturdays where we kind of process some of what we've thought about and increasingly in conversations with everybody uh, and you know I guess we could have anticipated that the Monday night sessions the office hours sessions would, would yield this kind of rich dialogue and uh, and then in all the rooms as folks are building out so now here we are poised to consider some things in the light of other things we've talked about. I mean, we did a couple of deep dives, relatively speaking, into critical race theory. And so we have that background and, you know, that background will continue to develop. I'm looking forward to the our conversations being reduced to print so that you can actually pull it off the shelf and take your time and read because reading creates a different type of engagement yes you know so absorbing that and then looking at the, the sources and being able to do that but this 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 conversation really is an opportunity for us to 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 benefit from the momentum of memory that we have even in our arc our less than two-year arc right now so I, as as you're talking, Prof, I'm thinking about the nature. Well, first of all, in terms of assessment, in terms of assessment, how do we know when, when folk are learning? We know when folk are learning when they become so deeply invested that the thing that brought them into the learning space kind of begins to fade when it is a and I'm going to use a pejorative term here just to kind of for, for a point of making a distinction when it is a coercive space. And, and by coercive space, I mean exactly what you said, when there is an asymmetrical power relationship. We know ideally in any learning environment, there, there are probably, if they're working well, three present elements, the teacher, the text and the students. And at any moment, any of those what some folk call three authorities can assume primacy. So all of us have probably had teachers who were not as effective as we would want them to be, which made us rely more heavily on each other and on the text. Some of us have been fortunate enough, many of us have been fortunate enough to have master teachers. And I don't just mean in classrooms, I mean in any learning moment. And we've overly relied on them, not overly relied on them, we've relied on them more primarily. And then in some cases where the text is unintelligible and the teacher is unintelligible, we end up relying on each other more often than that to go out and try to pursue that thing will help us. But in the example that you gave, uh, Professor Hunter, and in the profession that we work in, uh, 
the grade is the primary reason the students are there. They have paid tuition, they have subsidized the learning process, and they have expectations that we work every day to meet. But the young man who stayed after, while perhaps animated somewhere in his alloyed logic um, with trying to demonstrate that he is a good student, what he expressed seems to me to be the most authentic expression of assessment that you can get from a co-learner. Yeah. No, I'm I, because you're, I'm learning things I never knew. And that's the true assessment, right? It's not ABCD. It's not 190, 70. That's not, can I get one more point to get my midterm grade? I need this for my GPA. I got, I'm applying for school. No, he didn't say none of that, did he? No, and it, it made me feel like the, the journey that I've been on the last several years is like, I'm not going to teach you. I'm going to teach you basics. You're going to know how to write and construct a sentence and how to interview. But I will be successful if I have you thinking more deeply about your role in making sure that, you know, truth is at the forefront and that you are asking the right questions of yourself every time something comes down. Like, why do why are they pushing this particular story? So we we spent a good deal of time in the beginning examining what's in the news right now. And then the question is why Michael Barbara from from The New York Times um, podcast, The Daily uh, actually oh, joined joined the class. Um, okay. we got, yeah, we got to talk. You know, we had a, our relationships, our relationship, our paths crossed when um when the flag came down to South Carolina. He interviewed me for oh, many yeah. times, and uh, so I asked him to come. Oh, and oh, let me, let me, just the flag didn't just come down. Uh, right, right. <laughs> you had a lot to do with getting that flag off there. Yep, I didn't want to for anybody to mistake that very humble passive voicing with the fact that it didn't come down of its own accord. No, it did not. Uh, but it, it was a lot of people. It was Bree Newsom coming oh, no, no, no. up. It was, you know, it was a lot yeah, of folk. Yeah. And unfortunately, it was those nine people who, mm. uh, and we talked about that a little bit with the 88 million last year, sure that really sparked that happening. And then I see Nikki Haley um, in the, you know, giving shit a really, you know, I was like, you know, I'm from Jersey. So I'm sitting there watching her. You got this. You got this. And I'm like, chick, sit down somewhere. Which are, um, I have so many thoughts. I'm gonna keep them to myself. But you know, uh, he won't. He's still not conceding in his in a very Trump-like way. Uh, the governor's uh, race in uh, that Phil Murphy won, and I'm like, here we go again. The history rhymes, right? It doesn't repeat it rhymes. Yeah, he can't concede. I mean, because the concession isn't about winning or losing at this point. The concession is they have weaponized in the cold civil war. And by the way, I, I thoroughly enjoyed your conversation, the clip of it I saw with the cat that you all are building the, the, the ongoing dialogue to try to come up with the concept of we. And uh, I heard him mention the cold civil war. And so, and essentially this is, this is today's financial time. Andrew Shue. Andrew Shue. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I was like, wow. But you know, but I think that um, what we're seeing in New Jersey and this is today's Financial Times on the international page. New Jersey's tax-weary voters make a stand. And of course, FT is the money paper, you know, to the degree that any of the journalists, any that it practices journalism at all these days. And this is all going to taxly tie together. And, uh, you know, talking about Citarelli, um, it, it's clear that him refusing to concede is at this point, and any, any person in the white nationalist party um, the WNP. I'm not going to call them the GOP until white nationalism leaves them anymore. But uh, because, I mean, if this were Europe, for example, 
if this were uh, Poland, where you're seeing a minority begin to push for a Brexit vote, if this were Germany, where you see the right wing trying to form a coalition government with these other elements, if it were any other uh, multi-party uh, country in Europe, uh, there might be a white nationalist party. And I see no reason to continue to, quote unquote, brand the GOP um, with the term GOP when they have committed thoroughly to white nationalism. And that's including the blacks. And we're going to talk about Virginia in a minute as well. And the non-whites like uh, the anglicized Nikki Haley from India, people from India, which is no Nimrata. problem. We understand. Yeah, exactly. The, the melting Nimrata. 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 Yes, Nimrata. Which is interesting because even, in, even when we remind folk that that is one of her birth names, there is a gesture toward otherness that is a double-edged sword in the sense that there's a sense of her attempting to, and uh, Kenji Yoisho wrote a book called uh, Not Passing. Passing is like when you're trying to pass for white, but uh, it's kind of a masking concept. Oh, uh, the, the book will come to me in a minute. But at any rate, where you have folk who covering, covering is the phrase, she's covering. In other words, I will reveal to you enough of my otherness when I can weaponize it. So my anglicized name doesn't hide the fact that I'm not white, but I'm trying to strike a type of balance to make me the type of non-white that can absorb white nationalism and be seen in an, as an ally in perpetuating the white state. We're going to see that happen in Port Comfort, Virginia and surrounding areas, parts of Richmond in terms of gerrymander that led to the Virginia legislature tipping now to the white nationalist party. When we talk about what this means in Virginia and what this means for the national election, but I don't want to go too far with this. I just want to say that in, in today's Financial Times, they talk about that New Jersey race. And as I was reading the article this morning, uh, something struck with me and then you just really activated by talking about the fact that he won't concede the white nationalist who ran. And by the way, in a state where um, uh, Murphy, who was the uh, first Democratic governor in New Jersey to win a second term in 44 years, won the state only by 29,000 votes, less than one percentage point. And Jack Citarelli uh, got a lot of votes and turnout was higher than it had been. He won by uh, uh, Murphy, that is, 17 percentage points four years ago. Mm. And we're going to talk about what that means in terms of voter turnout, particularly in Virginia. But the reason he won't concede has less to do with him hoping to win the election, which of course he does, or hoping to steal the election, which of course he does. But it has more to do in the Cold Civil War with the concept that came out of the end of the Civil War in the uh, South that is referred to by scholars as uh, the three-word phrase, the lost cause. The South nursed and nurses, by the way, shout out to the, to the Cobb County uh, Caucasians, uh, who um, I was going to call them another name, but uh, those of you who know the name of the Negro League at, at the ABCs in uh, Georgia can imagine what name that I uh, withheld calling because there's no need to involve in, slur in slurs. But uh, and I call them Cobb County because they are no longer in Atlanta. Um, shout out to Kasim Reed, who's in the runoff next uh, for the. No, runoff. is he? No, he didn't make the runoff. Oop. <laughs> anyway, the point is that uh, <laughs> the Atlanta Braves left under his watch. And shout out to all them poor black people who decided that's it. I don't care how much money you raise in D.C. from all your friends, Kasim. 
go find a, 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 a working, you know, go find a job. I mean, you can't be the governor. You can't be the senator. The demographics haven't really shifted and people don't really trust you. So therefore, anyway, point is that uh, the Braves are no longer in Atlanta. They are in Cobb County. And shout out to them with their racist uh, tomahawk chop and their uh, parade yesterday that shut down the Atlantic public schools as they paraded out into Cobb County where they had their celebration, you know, dun, 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 dun. And so I'm bringing all that up because it is part and parcel of a cultural posture. The lost cause in the Confederate mythology is the idea that while we may have been temporarily defeated physically on the battlefield, we will nurse our cultural hatreds like children. And we will use the nursing of our cultural hatred wrapped in this concept that we will never concede into every element of our popular culture. It will find its way into the idea that we stand for whiteness, white Christianity, and the defense of white womanhood from the beasts. Uh, we would call that, as Ida B. Wells called it, Ida Bell Wells out of Mississippi, lynch law in all its phases. Um, we're going to see that play. We're going to talk about Virginia in a few minutes. And from what you showed your students, birth of a nation. And understand critical race theory. This is a central element. When you all go back and look at our conversation for a refresher. One of the central elements of critical race theory as it is taught, not as, as our befuddled and ignorant uh, uh, fellow citizen remark to the reporter, oh, I, I don't know who it is, but uh, from what I know of it, I, I don't like it. Of course you don't like it, because when you hear CRT, the only thing you hear is the N-word. As you say, the only thing you hear is the other. And so your lost cause DNA is activated by that. And it is a visceral, guttural, primal scream that emerges from the depths of your shrunken, insecure soul to bleat out that I must do anything to stop this. And that thing that bubbles up from the inside of this warped, shrunken concept of self is the lost cause. I must never concede. I don't have any children. I don't have any grandchildren in the schools, but I must go vote because I don't know what it is, but I know that I'm afraid of it and I hate it and, 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 and I don't like it. So understand, I get it. We, we all get it. But uh, I'm, ra I'm raising all that to say that this lost cause mentality and of course there's shelf of books written about this and we can talk about that another time. We can annotate this. But this lost cause mentality means that this guy in New Jersey, Jack Citarelli, can't concede. If he had lost by a million votes, he wouldn't concede. Because for the white nationalists at this point, politically, any political loss is a temporary setback. They are going to fight literally until the last dog dies. And I'm using that phrase metaphorically. Um, the point is that this lack of concession is now a political strategy that is gaining momentum that will converge with other trends that we see which we'll also talk about momentarily to allow them to win elections and so so it's interesting that um that you brought that up so yeah uh and i think it's pronounced shitarelli shitarelli <laughs> Maybe it's not, but I, it feels right to me. Oh, oh, um, yeah. oh, melt. <laughs> got it. Got you. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm mad at him. You know, my thing is, you know, these guys, they, they caricature themselves. <laughs> they don't need any help from me. Oh, we're going to talk about that too. Yeah. You know, but, you know, we have, we, the, 
they come out of nowhere, they have the game plans, and it just feels like strategically, you know, Stacey Abrams didn't concede, and she should not have. I was so she angry was when, when she was actually elected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew Gillum. She had Andrew Gillum, yeah. yeah. I sat there, and I was like, why are you conceding? Andrew because Gillum, they, what the frick? I was so angry at him. Because they believe oh. in America. When you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer. <sighs> so so now we're sitting here. I was like, okay, CRT is this one. Just ignore it. Like, I would never even acknowledge that it's a thing because it's not a thing. Okay, we're going to talk about, you know, did Trump get elected? Or did Biden get elected? Like, we're not going to talk about CRT because it's not a thing. Why are you even bringing this up? It's not even a thing. Like, that should be the the back and forth. I don't know why we're giving it energy, except that the media is in on the on the game. So it's time for us to hold them accountable as well. But moving forward, you know, to vote or not to vote, that keeps coming back. You know, people are like, what's the point? You know, this thing keeps, you know, and it's like, oh, you got to vote. And it's like, at what point do we, then I hate saying this out loud, but at what point do we uh, stop holding up this very fragile, fake, um, rooted in evil and racism system? Well, let's 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 introduce another element into our uh, into our weekly conversation, Professor Hunter, something that you brought to my attention that I had missed Uh, in the words of our brother Kanye West, quote, they are afraid of what is inevitable. Now, the we and the they that this brother was talking about with Joe Rogan and and who was it? Nori Nori Noriega. Yeah, Noriega, which I find in, in what's his what's his birth name? I have no idea. Let me look okay. it up. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering if he, um, like uh, Nazir Jones, who goes by Nas, but for one at for a short time, before a long time, oh. also had the moniker Nas Escobar. Uh, it, his it, name it, is his name is Victor Santiago. Okay, that's what junior. I was concerned about. I mean, this whole junior. Uh, so there's a senior junior, which means that he not only defiled his name, he defiled his father's name which i understand i mean in the sense that this naming themselves for these uh these drug brand uh figures is 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 fairly disturbing just from the context of cultural meaning making and also movement and memory in the sense that whether it be al pacino playing a cuban or jimmy cadney playing a you know scarface which is a little bit closer in terms of an italian this idea of this ethnic other drug dealer culture or whether it be uh, our brother uh, from Haiti, um, um, Wyclef Jean, referring to himself as a Haitian Sicilian, <laughs> you know. And by the way, we 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 should be, and we, we we should mention that at some point today. We want to take a little bit of a tour through some of the places that we've evoked and haven't forgotten about, like Haiti, for example, where you got this cat whose nickname is Barbecue, uh, uh, Jimmy Chesnier, who is part of this formation of uh, cl- cluster of groups that are tagged and labeled as gangs called the G9, if you can believe that. They are control, in control of large parts of Port-au-Prince. Um, and he's calling for Ar- uh, Ariel Henry, the current prime minister installed by the United States, the Organization of American States and others to resign. And the irony is that one of the, re- re- one of the ways, one of the reasons he is asking Henri, demanding Henri resign, by the way, is because it was the uh, tapes were released surreptit- surreptitiously uh recorded conversations uh well phone calls between Henri and Joseph Felix uh Barrio who is one of the people identified as the killer uh killers of Moise the uh juvenile Moise now these phone calls were made the night Moise was assassinated 
So you got this gang leader in Haiti calling for the resignation of the prime minister that the United States propped up and installed Henri and saying you had something to do with killing the former president. And I'm sure, you know, 100 years from now, when everything's released in the CIA tapes and all the Colin Powell secret files uh, and all that stuff is released, you'll find I'm making a joke there with Colin Powell. But uh, rest in peace, brother. But when all these things are declassified, you will then, or we won't be here, but we'll be in the ancestral realm like, yeah, we found that out as soon as we transitioned and saw these crypts over here from a distance because where we went and where they went were two different places. But at any rate, so I'm, I'm saying, you know, I was mentioning Haiti because I was thinking about it, but because of Wauclef Jean calling himself a Haitian Sicilian and he had Nas, Nas Escobar, and now you have this cat, Noriega. I'm like, really? So Noriega sitting there with Joe Rogan and you shared the clip where uh, Kanye sitting there engaged in one of his, uh, and I love the way you phrased it now, and I'll ask you to repeat that if you don't mind what you what you said to me in terms of trying to decipher what Kanye was talking about. One of the phrases he said was, you know, they are afraid of uh, what is inevitable. And I think that in a different context that we can use in a second, I think that is the thing that prevents us from doing the thing that is necessary. It prevents, um, it prevents, it prevented Andrew Gillum. It prevented Stacey Abrams. I'm using it in a different context. Uh, what is the fear? Well, the fear is that if you don't stand on your square, as they say with the Prince Hall Masons and the Order Eastern Star, if you don't stand your ground, if you don't be self-determining and say, no, I won this election and I'm going to challenge it, you're afraid that somehow they're going to put you out of the game, which means for all your genius, you don't understand what the game is. Come on. So let me just, um, I want to yeah, be transparent. Yeah, please, please, um, yeah. Cause yeah. I, as I was thinking about Kanye yesterday, preparing for my show, which is a different thing than this space. Yes, that, that's completely governance structure. I had to remind somebody on. I was like, "Hello, uh, you can't say that here. <laughs> we don't own this space. Stop it." But as you know, I was preparing for today. I was like, "I have to gather myself. I had to gather myself up, Professor Doctor Carr." Why is that? Because you know, my my instinct because I've been conditioned in this you know white settler you know mm -hmm. space to to troll Kanye. I'm conditioned oh. to troll him. I'm conditioned to put him, you know, in a place and I have the words to do it. I'm conditioned to undermine him. And then I, I had to ask myself this question. Why? Why is that your go to? OK, I've been conditioned to do that. But also, I don't want him to be the model that our young people follow. So I have to diminish him and destroy him, his character and make fun of him so that young people don't look at him as the model. And then I had to remind myself that these kids are smart. They can chew up the meat and spit out the bones, although they did show up the Travis Scott thing and eight people are dead now. Um, no question. Only if, they, if they're eating meat. But if they don't have meat, if there's no meat, then they're eating bones. Right. So so I guess our job here is to make sure there's enough food for everybody to be nourished, but also to demonstrate how we talk about people. Um, And we don't have to, I don't have to destroy Kanye, even though, you know, I have a lot of things I want to say, but I don't have to do that because the goal is to extract that nugget that we can learn from. The goal is to pick the meat off the bones so that we can be nourished. The goal is to free us. So if Kanye said something, which he did, which I, you know, he said, look at LeBron, I won this trophy for you, white lady. You know, why don't we own our teams? I was like, Ooh, meat. Let me, all right. What are your thoughts on that? No, Kanye can't be trusted. No, I know he's not. And, and I think that's why you have to. I mean, for example, for a, a quick, a couple of quick examples. Um, Minister Farrakhan was regularly excoriated for calling 
Hitler wickedly great. That's fair game. There's some things that are nuclear you can't do. If you try to uh, assign Mein Kampf in a political theory class, you might be able to get away with that in graduate school. And I'm saying that having read, I've never read Mein Kampf cover to cover, but I have a copy of Mein Kampf, of course. And anybody says, you shouldn't have that. I mean, this is a person who probably should would be in the pitchfork and, and uh, torch crowd ignorances. You want to understand fascism. And you can't just read Hannah Arendt on totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. You can't just understand the betrayals of the German intellectuals who went along the way with a great deal of this stuff. You should read what uh, Hitler wrote so you can recognize it in the rhetoric of Donald Trump and many others. Facts. But you know, but 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 you have to be careful. There was a professor, and I was I was with my uh, black aesthetics students uh, last week, and we were. I pulled up an article. Uh, there's a professor at the University of Michigan who was an internationally known composer who showed his uh, students in class uh, without telling them, uh, kind of giving them a, a prep or a background, uh, a, a movie, a film starring uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier. Uh, and you remember this film. I mean, we, neither one of us remember it from seeing it the first time, but we all aware of the uh, film version of Shakespeare's Othello, where uh, Lawrence Olivier did what countless white actors have done, played it in blackface. <laughs> right. Now, this is one of the world's greatest actors in the social structure context. And 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 I and, and the students, we were having a conversation about Ira Aldrich, who was the first person of African descent to play Othello in London. And I pulled up a clip from the great Paul Robeson, who uh, of course Ira Aldrich is one of his heroes, who played Othello as a young man in his 30s, then came back and played him again, and then came back a third time, being interviewed by uh, a white reporter. And who asked him, you know, why is this role important? And Paul Robeson was like, well, I uh, I think it's important. Shakespeare wanted to convey a sense, you see, of uh, the African, the black in a white world. And so for me, I, I bring a particular sensibility to that kind of conversation. So you see Robeson, and then the white man waits for him to finish and says, well, that's interesting, but it's really, you know, it's not a conventional reading, is it? Because the, the conventional reading, of course, would say that Othello was really about sexual tension and sexual conflict. Now, what part, uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's all right, because you live here in England. Here, what's this? This is a copy of Ida Bell Wells, Lynch Law, in all its phases. Uh, you know, you, you have to understand that when you say sexual tension to somebody Black, <laughs> a black man with a white woman and he kills the white woman on stage Robeson went on to talk about how he had played Othello in Cincinnati and how Cincinnati is just across the Ohio River from Kentucky and all these people from Louisville came and he said that night I didn't get too close to Desdemona <laughs> and he's like he's making jokes the white is going all over the white man's head because his whiteness is a European whiteness it hasn't been boiled down, reduced to a lowest common denominator, gone through bloodshed like the Civil War and turned into the lost cause that our, our friend in Virginia nurtures like a child. And so his whiteness was oblivious to the role of race, but that doesn't make it any less dangerous. So I said all that to say this in, in, in the context. I showed them the Robeson clip. We talked about Ira Aldridge and we looked at this Lawrence Olivier piece, uh, this black face minstrelsy of sorts, and then we, and then I asked them, was it right, was it correct in your estimation for the students at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, considered one of the country's finest institutions, to complain to the department, the dean, the provost, that this 
professor, who is, by the way, incidentally, Chinese, uh, perhaps he didn't filter through, uh, that complained that he showed them that and that it was racist. Now, this professor, who was an internationally known composer, this professor chose, had confronted with the possibility of an investigation as to why he showed them that, he chose to, quote, withdraw from the class. So he continues to engage in instruction. He hasn't been uh, penalized. He hasn't been punished or anything, although they were calling for his, uh, for his getting rid of him, some of them. Uh, but he just said, you know what? Let another professor take this class. I am sorry. I didn't think about it. But I'm saying all that in the context of what we can and can't do in having conversations. And the impulse to contain Kanye in a society, again, using our Africana Studies framework, and for those of you who are new to it, we won't go through it. Y'all can get the chart. Y'all can get the chart from narrative. But I'll just mention the categories, social structure, governance structure, ways of knowing, science and technology, movement and memory, cultural meaning making. Go back up to the uh, science and technology category, which asks how did or do Africans use science and technology in any particular moment we're studying to advance their interests. That question of science and technology in the current era means we are living in a moment of streaming technology. We are living in a moment of uh, uh, um, um, podcasts and Twitter. So Joe Rogan, who has no business talking to anyone as a teacher, uh, Noriega, who is, a, I'm sure, a fine human being and has no business being any near any learning process except his personal experiences. And you can if you can absorb that. And Kanye West, whose mother, Donda West, was a remarkable professor in the Atlanta University Center at Chicago State University, where she, you know, taught for many years, a, a colleague of uh, uh, Kim Delaney and Mario Beatty and so many others at Chicago State, Hakeem Abuti and so many others. Uh, but that's not Kanye. And Kanye, who is clearly very bright, Kanye, who is all number of things apparent to anyone with two eyes and a working brain, Kanye is about Kanye. So, of course, the coin of the realm for Brother West is attention. So he has mastered in terms of the way of knowing, which is why he opens that little two minute clip that you shared with me and has been shared with the world with the idea of black Twitter. Follow this black Twitter. Kanye says, exactly, you're calling out to something that didn't exist 20 years ago. It's something that really is, in terms of that category of ways of knowing, uh, a kind of um, a hashtag quantitative imagined community that congeals around conflict. And so any conflict, I want that trophy for you, white lady. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love that you have invested so much in this black sneaker company you have, Kanye. Uh, that wait, no, that no, no, your deal is not with a black sneaker. Oh, I see. This is about Kanye. In other words, this ain't got, and so you have to contain Kanye because, and I'll mention this, and I, I know you, I, I really, thank really, you. Thank I, you. I, I was, I, I was struggling with it because you know, we're, we're creating this world that we all want to live in, and mm -hmm. um, you know, you said something really powerful, and you've said it before that the greatest uh punishment someone can have is banishment, yeah. You know? Uh, because what we're building to me is so beautiful and I'm looking in the chat right now and the conversations are so edifying. Man, and so, wow. you know, um, as on Twitter, uh, somebody had a problem. He came in, you know, he's not part of the main team, but we're all part of the team, which made it. I, and I had to tell him how much I love him because it's like, you know, he, he stepped in the gap and there's so many people who are doing that every day. So I'm like, you know, I had to like challenge myself as we come into this space on Saturday. And then as we come into the spaces in Nubia narrative, I don't want to, I don't want to do what they do. 
you know, I, I want us to, you know, but this is a different space, but you're mm -hmm. still right. Mm -hmm. for, for, for the Olivia's of the world, you yes. know, Kanye has to be put in the context. He does. Um, so, so I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, because you know, in fact, let me ask you this, Professor Hunter, because this is very, this is very, very striking to me. Um, I was just reading this article yesterday um, when I went down to check on the young people at the yes. Blackburn Takeover, who is just now day twenty five. What is this day twenty five? Yeah, day twenty five, and they are now um, there are a number of alumni. I stood there and so far, in fact, I, I talked to this brother. This is my first time physically meeting him. The longtime principal at Dunbar High School, who was a Howard alum who graduated from Howard in the late 80s, who was part of the student movement that got uh, Lee Atwater uh, out of the paint when they tried to appoint him to the Howard University Board of Trustees. The thing about the lost cause, it never goes away. Wait, they it's, actually had Lee Atwater, the, the uh, oh, architect yeah. of the Southern strategy, the architect of all of no, this? No question, no question. These are Kasim Reed's classmates, in fact. They were telling me, in fact, that uh, the night, remember when Kasim Reed, I'm um, sorry, Kasim Reed, remember when, um, uh, um, um, my goodness, I just remember when Lee Atwater, in fact, the documentary, what's the name of that documentary? Anyway, I can't think that they did on Lee Atwater. Right, uh, remember, because he, he loved the blues. This is the, this, this is the thing, right? This is the thing that they call blacking up in minstrelsy. You hate black people, but you love black culture. So he liked to play blues guitar and all this kind of thing. Uh, they were telling me that uh, a certain uh, classmate of theirs who went on to become uh, the mayor of Atlanta, was boogie in the man? Room. Was it boogeyman? Boogeyman, boogie yeah. Because as you mentioned, as you showed your students uh, yesterday, the Willie Horton ad. You know, it's the architect of that strategy. And then, and then by evoking Nixon, of course, maybe think about Kevin Phillips, who talked about the Southern strategy. In other words, this is you tap into the lost cause. Remember, George Wallace won five Southern states in the election of 1972, running as an independent. And of course, Kevin Phillips and we need to we need to absorb that energy into the into the Republican Party, which was still the Republican Party at that point. Now, of course, having absorbed that energy and embodied it is the White Nationalist Party. Um, and mind you now, the Democrats could become the White Nationalist Party. I mean, this is a floating signifier, but the point I'm trying to raise is that, yeah, they got him, They Howard University wanted to appoint Lee Atwater to the Board of Trustees, and the students occupied the administration building, uh, several thousand, over 3,000 of them. And some of those very same students who are now, you know, adults across the range, PhDs, MDs, lawyers, school principals, teachers, many of, across the full range of occupations. Um, one of the sisters, it was the first and is still to this day, the only black woman ever made a captain in the police department of nearby Montgomery County uh, in Maryland. And she was there. Her son is, a, is an undergraduate now at Howard. And uh, she spent much of her career and is continuing to work. And I was asking about this sister out of St. Louis that testified about the, the white nationalism and the police force uh, last summer. And she said, oh, yes, that's my girl. We, we work together. They, they're both retired. Um, fighting against police brutality from inside the police force as black women at the rank of captain. You understand? She's still the only one. There's only been one black woman been a captain in the police force in Montgomery County, Alabama, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. She was there to, yesterday, and they all stand around talking, and we are we talking about different things, but apparently, uh, according to some of them, uh, Kasim Reed was in the room uh, when Lee Atwater was engaged in that famous blues guitar performance that put him on the map as a true lover of black people, but his <laughs> hatred of black people uh, uh, Nikki Haley would have appreciated the Lee Atwater. His hatred of black, he's a link in that chain of nursing that lost cause mentality. And yeah, they tried to put him on the Howard Board of Trustees. The students shut it down. Uh, my colleague Josh Myers uh, wrote uh, the history of that student revolt. And we talked about, I mentioned his book before. Um, he takes 
uh, a quote from uh, one of the leaders, my friend, dear friend, April Silver, who yes. uh, said, of course, and you know, April, you know, we are worth fighting for. That's the name of the book. If you want to read about that, the Howard University protests of 1989. And so in checking on them, you know, I was down there. And uh, let, me, let me pause. Let me yeah, I wanted to ask you a question, uh, as you mentioned. I, I don't think they hate Black people. I think we're the easiest uh, launch pad for power in this country. So okay. I think, you know, because hatred is, you know, because you can't hate something that's in that's in every corpuscle of this country. I mean, you can hate it, you know, but you you may hate the power of it that you don't understand. But more than anything, as I took my students through Birth of a Nation, Willie Horton, it, it was always a black woman. And even now, CRT has race in the very title. Right. It's com it's a convenient, it's a convenient tool to use to wedge your power, to, to increase your power. We're convenient. We're convenient. That's true. I mean, I guess maybe then the hatred, because I think there is, maybe there's a better word, because there, there is a disconnect in terms of sharing a common humanity. There's a, there's a predisposition to try to dehumanize other people. This is this is the ongoing work of the Caribbean scholar uh, Sylvia Winter when she talks about no humans involved. By the way, in that propaganda series, Law and Order, uh, one of the latest iterations, uh, uh, Law, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And I love the way that the, the 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 progressive prosecutors and the black men and women, particularly these young sisters who are lawyers out here trying to change this this world in the United States and defending these brothers and sisters get caught up in this machine, just refer to all these police shows as propaganda. But in the latest uh, episode of the propaganda known as uh, Special Victims Unit, uh, one of the police said when they when they stumbled upon this terrifying mass murderer and they found these bodies of black women and brown women, they were like, oh. the, 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 the medical examiner, I think, said, oh, it's NHI. And, and one of the cops said, well, what is NHI? And he said, no humans involved. Mm. And it reminded me that Sylvia Winter, the scholar, took that phrase NHI from the uh, scanner and revealed chatter of the Los Angeles police force who, when receiving calls in the black and brown communities, uh, would refer to the people involved by saying, okay, we're going over to such and such and such, uh, NHI. Mm. No humans involved. So NHI actually came from the police. And so I guess what I'm saying is that perhaps hatred is the wrong word, but there's a fundamental contempt for our common humanity that will allow you to use these people as sacrificial lambs. That's all. That, that, maybe that's what I... And then at the same time, they would elect the Larry Elder, if they could in California, Winsome Sears got elected in Virginia, Tim Scott what? got elected in South Carolina. So right. they would say, I, I don't hate Black people. I voted for Tim Scott and Winsome Sears. Why are you bringing race into this? Please make that make sense, because a lot of folk right now are... I'm not confused. I understand it. Of course. For those, you know, Winsome, Winsome, she, she's been out very vocal, very, very, very strong. Um, and then you mentioned Nimrata and, and they, they, they will elect others a lot. Ted, uh, was Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, you know, talk about Winsome Sears and Tim Scott and, and are they, and uh, how does that work in the minds of people who, are white nationalists. That's a that's a great question. And I know we we understand it as well. Yeah, like you say, but there may be an Olivia or not just a young person or somebody who is asking that same question. So um 
And by the way, if y'all don't know who Olivia is, well, all the Nubians know. So if you all are watching this and still haven't joined Narrative with Nubia, uh, and y'all y'all transferred part of that conversation that me and Urias had with them is mm, Denise and, and, and Olivia, um, eight-year-old Olivia, who just continues to be like, that's just like putting a, young people say, who put that battery in your back? My answer for the next few months probably going to be Olivia. <laughs> that's who put that battery in my back. So, but at any rate, um, there's a distinction as we know, when we think about the African states framework, we're talking about the social structure category. Who are Africans to other people? At the center of Western concepts of humanity are these artificial categories. And by well, all categories in terms of social constructions are artificial. When people say race is a social construct and sit by like they said something. Yeah, it's all a social construct. American is a social construct. <laughs> you know, I'm saying, you know, when people say our team as if they actually have stock in the Houston Rockets or the Atlanta Braves, it, it's all a manufactured concept. Benedict Anderson talks about imagined communities. When Kanye says black Twitter, do your thing. You know, that's an imagined community. There's no such thing as a community. It's, it, it, it's people on uh, on an app. But race Gender, in many ways, are socially constructed identities which must be contrasted with biological reality. So what I mean by that, and I'll use gender first as a way to work back toward race very quickly. Um, the Nigerian scholar, who you've heard me mention many times before, my dear friend and colleague, uh, Belithia Watkins, uh, talks about this a lot in her work, just one of the most brilliant people I know. Um, this scholar, the Nigerian scholar who Dr. Watkins often uses her text to teach her Black Women in America class at Howard, um, Oyewanke Oyewumi. Dr. Oyewumi wrote a book called The Invention of Women. And she says this Western proclivity to use social constructs and inscribe them on bodies. So this kind of, um, I guess, uh, what does she refer to it as? Almost like a biocentric uh uh soma centric in other words when i say woman you equate that with female and so of course once you've done that the idea of gender quote unquote fluidity is necessary why because you've written this set of attributes onto this physical body with a vagina and breasts and reproductive or organs we have children and but that is the biology but now you've infused that biology with a set of assumptions in terms of social role and you conflate sex and gender and so now what you have is now you have to create categories for people whose social behavior doesn't fit into your concept of that blended body social construct thing that you've created so now you need lbgtqia now you need queer now you need trans now you need but none of that would be necessary if you hadn't taken the first step of writing literally onto the body this social set of identities and what professor Yuwumi says is now that's all over the world now including all throughout africa however she says i go back she would say to classical yoruba pre-invasion pre-colonial yoruba language and of course this isn't without uh layered uh, debate because one of her um, uh, contestants in terms of debating with, and I find just reading their debates as fascinating as is a brother, Loran Matori, Randy Matori, who wrote a book called Sex and the Empire That Is No More about Oyo Yoruba and how the traversing going, and then he wrote another book called Black Atlantic Religions, about how you know a lot of these Africans end up in Brazil, then they go back and forth and how the cultures begin to change over time. It's kind of an emic etic approach. I talk about that in, the, in an article I wrote called What Black Studies Is Not. 
um, which is that one approach to look at it is that culture is constantly changing. So Matori is like, yeah, that might be technically true in some ways, but in other ways, that fluidity uh, is still present. And in other ways, it might have been present even before invasion. But I don't want to get too far off into that. Let me come back. I was like a footnote. Let me come back into the body of what I was saying about Oyuwumi and then use gender as the bridge to race to answer that question directly about how we confuse the two um, in terms of the social identity and the biological uh, reality. What Oyuwumi says is, in these Yoruba cultures, who was older was more important. In fact, the most important thing in a, in a family. It wasn't, so it wasn't like, okay, the, the adults, the parents have made transition. And then in the next generation, when they're portioning out land or resources, other resources, real or personal property, however you want to look at it, I guess that's not even a good phrasing. But anyway, the stuff, the stuff is not going to go automatically to the male child. The thing will descend to the, who is oldest. Who are the oldest? You see this in uh, Professor Amiadume, Ifi Amiadume's stuff, when she talks about male daughters, female husbands. You know, and, and there's a whole range of this. In fact, there's a journal that Belithi always talks about, Dr. Watkins, uh, Genda, J-E-N-D-A. They had a journal, an online journal for years where they're talking about these kind of things and making the point that in the West, gender is inscribed on the body. But you see these African societies where who is older, lineage is most important. And so much so that even in the language, you don't have those types of gender, gender differentials. And you know, one of the ways very colloquially, those of us who you know are fortunate enough to know more than one language, and there are many people here in Nubia and many people watching this who are, think about the languages that you speak that aren't Western languages and think about how gender is addressed in them. How many times have you heard somebody speaking Korean or somebody speaking tree or Yoruba or somebody speaking uh, Mandarin Chinese who, they they don't get the genders quote unquote right in English, or they keep what is that right? because in their languages that's not a primary factor in how you address another human being he and she and then you may you may call a he or she or she and then people start laughing ha ha no what you really should be doing is looking in the mirror and laughing at yourself because you've inherited a European language where they make these hard gender distinctions and inscribe them on the bodies the same thing here's the answer the same thing with race. So black as a concept, very different than the biology, race as biology. So when you see a Tim Scott, who is a thoroughgoing white nationalist, whether uh, because he is so craven politically that he has anchored his future, his political future to the white nationalist party, or perhaps because he believes some of that stuff. When you see Nimrata Haley, Haley, who has, has anchored herself in the white nationalist party, when you see uh, Winsome Sears, who has anchored herself to the white nationalist party, you are looking at white nationalists, but it creates cognitive dissonance because we take the social identity of blackness and project it onto their bodies. But how you look doesn't tell you what your consciousness is. And in, in the words of the great John Henry Clark, you know, Professor Clark, John Henry Clark used to tell you black tells you how you look, but it doesn't tell you who you are. It's it, 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 so you can't use the demography to dictate the way of knowing this is because that, that's really a social structure move. So you can't assume somebody has a certain political orientation, cultural orientation, because you see that through your eyeball, you have inscribed onto them meaning that they may or may not have. And so don't ever confuse. And, you know, we, we joke sometimes one of the aphorisms you see coming out of the Africana community in the diaspora, particularly the United States, all skin folk ain't kin folk. Mm -hmm. That is a beautifully simple way of knowing articulation out of our cultural meaning making. 
to reduce what I just spent 10 minutes talking about to one phrase. All skin folk ain't kin folk. In other words, all, all social structure constructed blacks are not governance structure blacks. But white people don't know that. So how do they? Too many blacks. Yeah, but how do they, if they don't like black people, mm -hmm. they don't value black people. They don't think we're, you know, whatever. Uh, even well, if they, they like know black. that we're, even if they know black is powerful and they yeah. want to diminish it. How do yeah. you align yourself with a Winsome Sears or a Tim Scott? How do you utilize them in your structure, which is saying white people are supreme? Let's talk about that. You look forward to recruiting those types of biological blacks because you know that the people who are uh, closest to them in phenotype may be, may, may not understand that all skin folk ain't kin folk. And a lot of people in Virginia did. In fact, what happened in Virginia last week wasn't about low turnout. In fact, quite the opposite. And we're going to talk about that in a second, but let's look at that. And rather than win some Sears, I want to go to the, well, let me pause here. Let me pause here so we can reinforce this point we, we're, we're having right now. What the White Nationalist Party, if you remember, we remember, of course, that uh, when Barack Obama won his first term, the white nationalist party gathered in washington dc and are now cast aside i'm sure multi-millionaire because he's somewhere still sucking at the tit of the billionaires uh Rince priebus oh. you may remember that golden yes. only from wisconsin friends with young paul ryan who is also suckling at the same uh teeth probably a pig with 15 or 20 teeth from billionaires that they're both suckling from somewhere as they sit back and decide when they will win where if ever they will re-enter electoral politics in one form or another but you remember right ranks previous uh, co uh um commissioned and they generated a memo because the white nationalist party was afraid at that moment to to use again brother kanye's phrase they were afraid of what is inevitable and they made the mistake that we all make when we confuse the social structure and the governance structure, when we confuse socially constructed identities with, with biological reality, when we inscribe or ascribe ideology or culture to people just because of how they look, the white nationalist party, having made that mistake, said, we won't ever win any more elections until we appeal to these non-white people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get more. Remember that? They called it an autopsy. <laughs> they, they 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 did. And and, 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 and you know, and people think that I'm doing this tongue in cheek, but I really mean it. Having no investment in the settler project, seeing myself in a long view of history and seeing this as with all societies as a temporary arrangement and one that won't even last as long as the middle dynasties of China, one that won't even last as long as the as the dynasties of Kemet, one that won't even last as long as Ghana, Mali or Songhai, but one who won't last as long as the Azteca or the Inca or any of the other formations. Uh, the United States of America ain't going to be here. The only question is when. Is it going to be a thousand years? Nah. Remember, remember Hitler was talking about the thousand year Reich, the third Reich. How long did that last? Well, roughly speaking, 1939 to 1945. The point is that, you know, people can talk all kind of smack, but the only constant is change. So the country's not going to be here. Don't weep for the United States and stop trying to prop it up or not. You can spend your lives if you want to. I have no such investment because my view of history don't start in 1619. It don't start in 1519. It don't start in 1419. My view of history begins with as far back as we can. And it's not only going as far back as we can. It's also, so in other words, it's not just vertical in terms of this linear notion of history, because that can handcuff you as well. 
That's why when Kanye West is talking to Noriega and Joe Rogan, he says foolish things like, you know, I don't want to talk about Black History Month no more. Can we talk about Black Future Month, Black Possibility Month? I'm like, bruh, <laughs> where are you starting history? I don't want to hear no more stuff about, you know, uh, I'm tired of us getting hunted down. I'm tired of slavery. I, I'm tired of them telling us we lucky to vote for somebody we ain't seen since the election. Somebody who does, who's ignorant was like them bars and somebody who knows it's like them is bars. But the word B-A-R-S will mean two different things for the person for the person who thinks you're saying something. So that's bars. He said, you've got some clarity. You think that's clarifying. But the other person like me and you would say that's bars. You have just now conceptually incarcerated the entirety of Africa. Africana in a prison that started with enslavement and then misinterpreted everything that happened since. Brother, you need to sit down and get this Africana studies framework, uh, get this dance, you know, to take another contemporary parlance, but or go through your mother's things again. Because she was said again as if he ever did. Well, I mean, you know, I suspect because when you hear him, it's very clear. In the time when his mother and father were teaching in the Atlanta University Center, in the time when she was at Chicago State, and he used to come up on campus. It's clear that it isn't that he hasn't been exposed. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, she took him to China with him. You know, no I did question. the book, Raising Kanye with her, spent yeah. a lot of time with her. Would you, would you, um, somebody would you in the chat. On that? Because I started yeah, somebody in the chat was like, you know, it's the Kardashians. I was like, no, um, you know, so it's a couple of things. And a lot of us have this uh, in our parenting. You know, you have a child that you didn't expect to have. And it's in many ways a miracle and it's your only child. And so you pour everything into this child, meaning that you don't give them too many no's. You're going to let them do everything, even though you weren't raised that way. You were actually marching with your parents and being arrested with your parents. And you, you know, but you didn't want to expose him to those hardships. So you let him do everything. And everything he did was brilliant. Everything he did was great. Yeah. It was amazing. And, and, and I'm to her and I'm not talking out of turn. Um, I spoke with her when, before she went to the hospital and we had this conversation and I said, why are you doing this? You know, you, you look fine. You know, well, I can't have the camera pan and it, you know, and my husband, uh, not my, my husband, oops, my son, he's dope. And then his mother looks old, like in her mind, I, I don't want him to have that as an image. So I want to make sure I look, I fit. And I was like, come on, you know, and we all know, you know, that she didn't last long after those surgeries, but mm. the emphasis was not, you know, healing self. It, it was him. Yeah. And, and you, you saw, you know, when he ran up, somebody said Kardashians, his mama was alive when he ran up and took that woman's statue and said, you know, his mama was alive when he said appropriately, George Bush don't care about black people. Right. But you know, there, there, you know, there's this, um, thing that I've seen a lot. I've seen it in my own family, you know, where you, you, you give permission without boundaries and you expose to everything without context and framework. Right. And as a result, you raise people who believe in things they don't understand. Yes. And then we suffer, right? Because now he doesn't have the, the tethering. Right. Uh, I believe if, if Donda West were alive, Kim Kardashian would not. He was engaged to a woman that she was very happy with. And they, they had she had a little boy that she was very engaged with. She loved that little boy. He would have married her. Mm -hmm. uh, that black girl uh, had his mama been alive because he was very devoted to his mother. And she did have a way of pulling on him, but not to the point where we, we have now. He's he's completely untethered. 
He's so any, anything that could bring him back in. He's so, you know, so yeah, I mean, you could be exposed. People are exposed to this. Doesn't mean that they process it and do well, something with it. Well, but that's the thing, though, with us. And first of all, thank you, because this is very important. And for those of you who haven't read, read Raising Kanye, you're you're hearing you're hearing how that text was constructed in that. And this is this is. Incredible. And I wouldn't recommend that book because she wouldn't do the one I told her this. I said, because you aren't going to put the things out there, that need, there were several things that I'm going to take to my grave that needed to be in that book for other people to understand, mm. right? But again, she was like, I don't want that to land on him. It was again, I'm like, this is your book. This ain't his book. This is your book. I don't want it. I don't want people to question him about choices that I made. So there were a lot of things in that book, a lot of things that didn't make the book that should have made the book that would have given you a better understanding of this incredible woman. But she, she put everything in front of, this this young man was it was all about him. She well, lived me, that life for him. Let me let me let me just encourage you on on all of our behalf to inscribe that somewhere so that it makes it into the archive so that at an appropriate moment in time, not 50 years from now, because you'll still be around, but 100 years from now or whenever people can engage because the important thing, I mean, what you're reinforcing for us all footnote, Nubia narrative, an institution that we are building together that we have for those of you not yet in it. This is what this, this, that's the, the footnote. This is the footnote to what I'm about to say. You're reinforcing the function and importance and invaluable role of institutions. We have to have institutions. The first human institution, of course, is the family. So the idea that there would not be a clear intergenerational distinction, and I want to talk about that in the context of a book that I'm just about now. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not just about. I am thoroughly committed to us. You know, perhaps we'll have to do a little. Now we we got we got you know in class we got office hours. I'm talking about just my little corner of. Uh, the, the 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 narrative universe, the ones that I'm most engaged in consistently, but we're going to have to, and we've been talking about book clubs. I think we're going to have to do Hampate Ba's book, mm. Kalel the Fuller Boy, because this is really all about institutions, beginning with the family, beginning and how the social structure attempts to invade when young uh, Amadou Hampate Ba goes off to what he calls the white man's school. Uh, chapter five, requisitioned by force. But before chapter five, which is on page 194, you've got literally almost 200 pages of him coming through his roots, through his family. His family stretches all the way. He takes this all the way back to ancient Africa. He talks about the migrations from the East and he starts talking about all these unbroken things. And then he comes into white man's school and they're going to assault him with a different form of literacy. But he is so deeply rooted. He's like Ayikwe Arma, actually more deeply rooted in who he is that he never budges. Humpate Baz, I've reminded people many times, is the brother who the uh, the um the dicta is attributed to the phrase uh, the the phrasing that says you know when an elder dies is it is as if a library has burned that's Hampate Ba who, who 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 that 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 quote is attributed to but anyway I said I had to say that the importance of institutions the family being the first one in the example you've given us with Brother Kanye and Dr West his mother you see what happens when institutions are shrunk down to individuals and you have a mother and son 
And while some people might call, and it may be even in the chat as we're looking over in chat, uh, a Freudian slip when you said husband, uh, oop, I mean mother. Yeah, you can attribute that to Freud, but the simple fact of the matter is in some ways he was not a son. He's a companion. <laughs> and this isn't a, a, a berating of her. It's an acknowledgement that in this social structure, intergenerational distinctions are not only undervalued, they are often attacked with force. The idea of a child beauty queen, for example, you're not going to see that in societies who have deep intergeneration. There are some things that children cannot wear, cannot say, cannot do. But in the Western society, the, the spectacle displaces even intergenerational transmissions of knowledge and wisdom. Meaning if a child can be branded, I mean, you've got people out here now pimping their children out, uh, putting them on videos, hoping that the algorithm will catch fire and they can become quote unquote influencers. What is a six-year-old doing to influence? You know how eight-year-old can be influential? She can be like Olivia with all the light of the universe in her eyes an eagerness to learn and all that natural talent and acquiring her steps. And now I am in the presence of my mother and my mother turned on this computer. And during a set of office hours, I came into this space to ask you a question, sir. <laughs> I need some assistance for the next step. Okay, that's how it works. Not you dress them up like a five-year-old version of a 25-year-old, paraded them out on a stage, and engaged in a in a cosplay Hunger Games with other five-year-olds for the message that if you do this for the next 25 or 30 years, you can be uh, uh, successful. So that when you get to be 45, 55, 65, you're still chasing that five-year-old. Uh, you're still chasing that 25-year-old. And so you go under the knife to try to get back to something that in other societies is seen as a stage in your life. And the blessing of old age is as another social construct, literally written onto your body. The wrinkles become the thing you aspire to. The hands become, at my father's funeral, my brother, Reverend Jeff Obafemi Carr, i never forget, he performed a poem, a short poem, and he said, you know, at some point in my life, when I look at my children and I see my father here, I look at my hands and I say, you know, I have my father's hands. My dear friend and brother Lawrence Jackson, who teaches at um, Johns Hopkins, who was at Howard University for many years before Emory came along and said, we're going to pay you a living wage, son. And he with tears in his eyes, he, he came to Howard and said, I don't even ask you to match this offer because you give me a little raise. And they're like, nah. So he left and went to Emory, who is from Baltimore, uh, from West Baltimore. My man, Larry Jackson, wrote a whole book called My Father's House. I'm sorry, not my father's house. I'm thinking about uh, Apia, and that's definitely not who I should be thinking about. My father's name, Dr. Jackson. And Lawrence Jackson, who I met in graduate school, we met at Ohio State. We used to call him Du Bois because, I mean, he's a genius. And, you know, he's kind of a smaller guy. He's real, you know, just cerebral. So we call him Du Bois. He's written a, y'all look up Lawrence Jackson. He wrote a book on Ralph Ellison. He did one on Chester Himes. He did an incredible book on black writers in the 30s, 40s, and 50s called The Indignant Generation. Brilliant brother. And he wrote a book a very personal book called My Father's Name. And he starts that book with a confrontation. And I said, Larry, why you put this in your book, man? He said, because when that happened, man, you, what you said spoke to all of us. I'll never forget. We were at Howard in Crampton Auditorium and they had a panel. You know how they had these social structure panels on, uh, as Du Bois might say, how does it feel to be a problem? I'm sorry, that's not the title of the panels. The panels are usually something like, you know, race in America. 
or us. Du Bois, Du Bois said, you know, and so is the black folk. Every time I see these white people come out, I know a fine colored man in my town, or I fought in Mechanicsville. He said, the real question they really want to ask you is, how does it feel to be a problem? In other words, every panel on race in America, all these stuff you see now, special CNN, race in America, featuring, slot in your favorite race interpreters, white facing race interpreters, many of them my friends. But the point is this, they had one of those things at Howard. And they had the usual suspects, you can fill in the blank, but they had nobody from Howard on the stage. They wanted the brand. And you know, Howard is pretty good at that, you know, kind of you know, auctioning off the brand for whatever benefits. And so we're there, but the outcry got so great that they didn't have anybody on the stage from Howard. And you know, I teach a lot of students. So these young people were like, you ain't gonna, have, you gotta have somebody. So administration was like, okay, they got, hey, you gotta have somebody. And they were like, well, who do you want? And they said, well, they want Dr. Carr. Okay, so then they interviewed me. They pre-interviewed me. I love this. This is why y'all don't see me on white people's media, you know. 10 minutes of pre-interview, it's very clear <laughs> that this is gonna be a problem. But, but I grew up in the South. I know how to talk to the social structure well. So here's the thing. After like two hours of rotating panels and blah, 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 they start talking about, you know, the problems in the black community, the absence of black fathers, you know, all that social structure bullshit they be putting out. And so near the end, Brian Williams is the moderator. This is before he, you know, fell and then was restored because as a white man, you can never really truly fall. Uh, shout out to Aaron Rodgers. But the point is that when he got to the end of the second hour, he said, uh, now we're going to have somebody from Howard. Uh, Professor Carr, are you here? He's looking out because they didn't put me on stage. I'm sitting in the audience with Larry and them. All the students break out into cheers and everybody on stage, and these are mostly blacks. You can fill in the blank as to who you think might've been there. They looking with shock. Why? Cause y'all been race interpreting for two hours to America, meaning white America. And meanwhile, black people been sitting here watch as hostages, watching you try to explain how it feels to be a problem. But now they know, and nobody there, well, some of them people did know, cause I know some of them people. Brian Williams has no idea, you just invited this governance structure into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so they give me the microphone, here come all the cameras, all the spotlight, five minutes. And that was the end of that conversation. Cause the first thing I said was, y'all talking about the absence of fathers. And this is where Larry starts his book, My Father's Name. With, which is an exploration of his father in Virginia, Larry, people from Virginia. We're going to get to Virginia in a second. I started with, I knew my father. This brother knew his father. So first thing y'all going to stop doing is acting like black people don't have no families because you set up the argument and then you want to tell us how to dictate our families. Now, what I didn't say is we not only raised our families, we raised your sick families. And all this hatred of black people is really, you're right, hatred ain't the word because at the center of that hatred is desire. Come on. How to be Wells is writing about in lynch law and all its phases. She said, if you want to understand lynching, you got to understand sex. You got to understand the desire for black bodies. The desire for the bodies of black women. Oh, and Ida Wells is not writing in 2021, y'all talking about intersectionality. Take all that talk, set it aside and go get out of Bell Wells, who's writing in the 19th century. She said, oh, the desire for the bodies of black women. Yeah. So this whole notion of protecting white womanhood, maybe that ain't even really even about loving white women. Maybe it's a form of desire that dare not speak its name. So of course you got to cut that black man's genitals off. 
of course you got to string that black woman up because the secret desire that you have for her that you used to be able to express in your cabins late at night and now since the end of the civil war you got to figure out another way to do it just triggers you it just triggers you and so anyway larry you know when he's writing about my father's name he was talking about this when we look at dr west and her son kanye we're looking at and his father who his father's still alive right yeah he's a photographer he's a great artist exactly great exactly who has intervened several times what you said is so powerful he doesn't have that tether even as in the governance structure of Kanye West. And we all have governance structures, micro governance structures. You know, Nick called me, Cannon, one day from, where you at, man? I mean, this is during COVID. Where you at? I'm in Wyoming. What you doing in Wyoming, man? I came to see Kanye. Dave Chappelle went out there. In other words, the guy needs us. Now, from the outside looking in, we like, man, but you get it. Why? You ain't got his father, even. Everybody, so my point is that I'm raising all that to say that, yes, he was surrounded and you just walked us through how that doesn't take when you don't have the type of institutional formations that can reinforce this intergenerational piece. And you then in its place have an individual who loves their child, who wants the world for their child, but who engages in. Because again, this is apprenticeship, whether it be Amadou Hampate Ba, whether it be young Olivia, whether it be you or me, as you grow and acquire these stages in what might be called the rites of passage, you are allowed into knowledge as you show mastery and you grow incrementally. But if you're in a situation where that is not fostered in the institutions, you might find yourself with a parent who uh, engages you in what my dear friend, Dr. Aisha Imani, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the leader of Sankofa Freedom Academy, our K-12 Freedom School in Philadelphia, Dr. Imani um, calls the curse of the good job. In freedom schools, there's this chant that we do. You finish your reading, you finish your presentation, you finish your little dance, or you finish your report out, and everybody says, good job, good job. Good job, good job. G-O-O-D-J-O-B, good job, good job. Then you know you did a good job, so say you did a good job. It's for children. But in freedom schools, it's suffused. Everybody does that when you finish. Now, here's the problem. What if you didn't do a good job? <laughs> we used to say this all the time, Philadelphia Freedom Schools. Okay, when you finish, if you didn't do a good job, we're going to say, you know you did a job. And here's some <laughs> feedback. <laughs> feedback. Feedback. Because <laughs> see, the curse of the good job is, and we've all been there. You get up and stumble through a speech in Sunday. No, actually, that's, yeah, that is true, too. You stumble through your little Easter speech, and everybody says, oh, no. <laughs> then you go for the true arbiters. The mother's boy is sitting there, uh, stone face. Margaret, <laughs> Margaret just Margaret just butcher at her little elementary school play on the campus of Howard University at Miners Teachers College. She finished her little Christmas speech, came outside, and her uh her daddy, Ernest Everett Just, the Spingarn medalist, the cell biologist, the genius out of South Carolina, went to Dartmouth undergrad. We talked about him before. Ernest just looked at her and said, you missed a line. Ooh. <laughs> now, it crushed the girl so bad that the brother who was standing next to Dr. Just came behind him and said, oh, no, no, it's okay, dear. You did a fine job. The brother who was trying to rebuild her crushed self-esteem, that stayed with her the rest of her life. 
that is in the first pages of a book that she finished for that brother after she got to be an adult, became his research assistant, promised him on his deathbed she'd finish his book, and finished his book, The Negro in American Culture, Margaret Just Butcher, completing the manuscript of the brother who told her that day after her daddy told her, you missed a line, you did okay, dear. And that man was Elaine Locke. So the, whole, so the whole point is that that intergenerational, I mean, you got to be able to say, we're proud of you. We love you. And because we love you, we're going to give you some pointers to help you grow. I've seen Aisha is a master at that. She'll, she'll do an interview and the young people and some teenagers, she'll say, you know what? I'm, your energy was great. You really have acquired these skills. Let me help you with some other skills that we can work on. And then she'll start asking them questions. I mean, so one of people say, oh, Dr. Carr, you good with children. If I'm good with children, it's because I've watched master teachers and I've been with master teachers because you can mess a child up. So, Dr. West, you know, I mean, I ain't gonna say she messed him up and not. No, him up. no and I and I don't ever, you know, because, again, I think a lot of times, especially mothers and their sons, you know, you you want to protect them so much that you almost yes. feed them. And I keep using this baby bird egg analogy. You know, if you do not if you help a bird out of an egg, they will not have the neck muscles to go get worms and to fly. That's right. And a lot of times we, we crack that egg open for our children and we don't, you know, we think we're helping them. But like you said, you know, everyone shouldn't get a trophy. Everyone shouldn't win. If everyone hasn't, you haven't done all of the things, you right. know, we have to be honest with our children in love. Like you said, you know, not crush them, but no, yeah, no. you could do, but can you do better is the question I always ask. Is That's this right. your best? Can you do better? That's you tell right. me. Yeah. I'm. I have my students critique themselves. We look at their project. How would you do that better? Yes. Is it what I what I ask them? Because yeah. and then we all participate. You know, in helping people to get better. Yes. That's that's, That's what you have to do. In fact, I'm glad you raised that for a couple of reasons. Um, and I won't name any of them. You put your favorite child actor, your favorite child actor in, in this slide. Western cultural meaning making uh, creates these kind of in, infantilizes. It makes infants into these prodigies. So think of the think of the brilliant child, the smart, alecky child, mm -hmm. the, the wise, cracking, cracking, quip child who's in the movie, who's in the TV show, the little one, always, right? And you can contrast that. I mean, you know, I, maybe I'll give one example just by way of contrast, where you see the governance structure and the social structure close to each other, and you see a brother dancing on that line. Unlike Kanye West with Joe Rogan and them, who is saying, we, you know, we got to come together. We got to do the deal. They don't want us to know. And I'm like, who are you talking about? They and us. You got this cat here who's an agent of chaos. And you got this brother over next to you named for a drug dealer. And you are or actually on the payroll of George Bush. But that's a whole story. Another day, Emmanuel Noriega. We talked about Panama. But and then you talking about they and us. And then, you know, the guy whose show it is, is egging you on because he's going for the same clicks and likes that you're going for both of y'all basically brand ambassadors and the brother sitting there don't even know what's going on he just a pair of earrings accessorizing this this thing but so maybe the we was cloud chasers maybe that's it but the point is that um hmm. unlike that you had another example of someone who is sitting firmly in the governance structure who never wavered from the governance structure who engages the social structure in a way, and when you see the governance structure engage the social structure in a way that uses the same language you would use in the governance structure as the social structure, that's what you could almost call the definition of irony. Irony is when you say one thing and two different people hear it completely differently. 
that's the use of irony. In fact, next week, and I've been thinking about this, so we're going to talk about it maybe a little bit on Monday night, and you probably already watched it, because I don't know how you do it, but you watch everything. I don't know how. You're probably going to talk. You, you read everything. Yeah, well, you know, but, but so between us, we got the air. <laughs> <Not> everything covered. <laughs> But I, I, I really am itching next week because I only watched a few minutes of it. I haven't had time, but I'm going to sit with the harder they fall. Come on, sit with it. I'm going to sit with it because, you know, anytime you're talking about Nat Love, Deadwood Dick, anytime you're talking about Mary Fields, stagecoach Mary, who at 60 years old became uh, uh, the, the, the first black woman to run a postal route. Anytime you're talking about Jim Beckworth and, and Bill Pickett, who invented bulldogging, or, or Cuffy, who was really modeled on Kathy Williams. Kathy Williams. Yes. Yeah. And just when you start talking about that, so you talk about the Nat Love gang or even the, uh, the Rufus Buck gang. Rufus Buck was a notorious outlaw. A couple of them cats was put to death. Gertrude Trudy Smith, come on, she's a legend. Cherokee Bill, they killed that brother. I think he was 20 years old when they when they lynched him. Wally Esco, and of course, the great Del Rolando playing the man for whom the black, the damn Lone Ranger was, was modeled on, Bass Reeves. I mean, my thing is you got all the names right, and then you made a completely fictional story up. Yeah, you're gonna be I was gonna say you're gonna be disappointed. No, 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 I'm not because I don't never go into anything in white facing commercial media as anything other than a tool for profit. So I know it's all an advertisements at this point. That's why uh, you understand in terms of the news. You understand better than I do. In fact, I want to ask you about something in a second related to that. But uh I want to sit with it because it is another example in my mind from the first part. I saw about 10 minutes. See, I saw Jonathan Majors, the little boy stuff, and this kind of thing. I said um Clyde Taylor, this is a book where it is, as we develop this, this will be another book we get into, I think. Uh, um, the elder Clyde Taylor's book, The Mask of Art, where he talks about breaking the contract with the white aesthetic, where he talks about the fact that whiteness, the power of whiteness is in its invisibility, where he talks about the master narrative, when he talks about the tropes that you see so that you should take your eyes away from the specifics and look at the underlying themes. So Clyde Taylor in The Mask of Art says, you see Birth of a Nation? Yeah. You see Star Wars? Yeah. Same narrative. What? Yeah. You got the clan over here. You got the Jedi Knights over here. You got white Christianity over here. You got the force over here. You got saving the damn white women from being uh, raped in the birth of a nation. You got save Princess Leia over here. You got the slaves over here to get too much power. You got the droids over here, the butler and the little one who can't talk. You got, and, oh, oh, oh. And he's, you understand, it's the same narrative. Let me say, well, they changed Star Wars since 1977. Last time I checked them, last three Star Wars, where they got your brother out there saying, boo, boo. That's like his one line through three damn movies. And finally, y'all broke that, brother. You broke that Nigerian by way of London because John Boyega finally, you know, he just decided I'm going to be all the way black. I'm wearing my African clothes. I mean, yeah, because them three Star Wars movies, man. Shit, if I got to yell that white woman's name again, Clyde Taylor is like, this is the master narrative. So what I have to see is where in this, the harder they fall, is there the possibility of breaking out of what Clyde Taylor calls despotic ironies, where the people with the unequal power relationship plug you into the same old stereotypes? And I'm wondering, since they made one movie for everybody, and it's going to speak differently to different groups, mm -hmm. whether or not irony is in play with what Clyde Taylor would call radical Ethiopicism. It's a whole concept. So we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, yeah, we, and we should. But I just want to say that the rector and the uh, writer who happens to be the brother of Seal. the, the Oh, uh, really? Yeah, that's Seal's brother. Uh, and also a songwriter and uh, producer, worked with Jay-Z and Jay Electronica and others. Um, he wanted to pre present a Western 
that wasn't necessarily a black Western. He said, why do you call it a black Western? You know, you don't call, you know, these uh, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, you don't call them white Westerns. So, you know, I think, I don't think he has to, to, you don't have to, right. I don't think he has the depth to really do what needed to be done. Okay. But, you know, very few people have the depth (laughs) to do. Well, well, this is why I wanted to mention this. This is interesting. First of all, this is a tenet of critical race theory. Those of you, we talked about this real critical race theory, not lost cause CRT. Let me, my next label for the N word. Um, One of the tenets is that whiteness, the power of whiteness is in its ability to establish itself as normative as the norm. We talked about this. Clyde Taylor would say the power of whiteness lies in its invisibility. So when you say, why they got to call it uh, a black Western, they don't call it a Clint Eastwood, a white Western. That's because Western means white son. And I'm saying son here very deliberately uh, in, in, in the, in the parlance of my Philly young bulls who taught me this many years ago, you need to be sunned. And by son, that don't mean ridicule. That don't mean clown. I mean, son in its broadest concept, you need to be reduced to someone who needs a rite of passage to achieve the maturity. And I don't throw any of these people away because they can achieve that maturity if they keep working at it. As Thelonious Monk said, only wrong notice if you stop playing, but you do need a piano teacher. But the point, so you need a teacher to help you in this process. But I'm saying that to say that, yeah, he might not have had a chops, but here's a cat who had the chops. I'm about to name, unlike Kanye messing with Joe, Joe Rogan and Noriega and them, unlike this brother, maybe I'm going to sit with this and see, because sometimes even if you don't have the chops, the governance structure will populate it with the chops. That's what happened as Marvel figured out that they needed to bring Michael B. Jordan back for a few more movies. Why? Because you didn't understand that the governance structure wants to beat your ass for what happened to us. So while you tried to establish T'Challa as the model black, the good black, the Negro set through Black Panther, and when Michael B. Jordan smashed that case and took that African mask out that damn museum, we were with him all the way. Said, don't kill him. Why? We get them weapons and let's give out that work. And so Marvel is like, shit, we was going to make uh, we thought we'd make some $800 million, but these Negroes came back five times. Shit, we got in their pockets five times in a row, and most of them cheering for Killmonger. You know what? Bring him back. So that might be the unintended consequences of something like the Hard Day Fall. I'm going to sit with it, but the brother who did get it, who was in the governance structure, but could speak to, not only speak so deeply to Black people using the white-facing media, but do it in a way that was so thoroughly rooted in the culture of Africana meaning-making in the United States, in the diaspora, with an echo of Africa, that he could do it while looking in the camera and saying, America, that little one, (laughs) she a shepherd for the devil. She a shepherd for the devil. Bernie Mac understood (laughs) how to speak one thing in the camera of the social structure and the governance structure never confuse. So he said, I believe when the child get three, you got the right to hit him in the throat and it's the, oh, black people are like, why? You remembering some things children can't say. So even if you got all the gifts in the world that you're the smartest person in the world, think about the little girl who was on Blackish, you know, which is why it is appropriately named Kenya Barris. I agree with you, brother. It is Blackish. But when you look at the Bernie Mac show, you're looking at somebody who is, and I'm not saying this isn't a question of good and bad. This isn't a question of morality. It isn't a question of valence, of valuation we're putting on. It's a question of who African people are to each other. You get a glimpse, even in the class structure that you a child in this house. I don't care how smart you are. It's like, oh, 
that reminds me. Meanwhile, white people are like, ha, 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 Bernie's so funny. Black people are like, yeah, Bernie funny as shit. Those are two different articulations on the same, the same plane. Now, this is where, this is where I'm going with this. When we ask the question, how can I win some Sears? How can a Tim Scott? How can a Nimrata um, Haley, Nikki Haley, how can they persist in a white nationalist party? We understand that whiteness, able to articulate itself as normative, tries to hide itself and then remove white. So they say, well, see, uh, uh, we have black people in the Republican Party. Yeah, those aren't black people. You want to say, well, are you, are you are you saying that there's one way to be black? Absolutely not. I'm saying that there's a governance structure where there's an articulation of black experiences that does have common denominators based on our shared experiences. So when Tim Scott running for office in South Carolina says, as a child, I was whipped. And I think we need some of that discipline. And the white nationalists say we can use that to pick off a few black voters who haven't been paying attention to the fact that we've been gutting the social programs, stealing their money and giving it to our billionaire friends. But because that little part of it resonates with them, they might go and vote, which is what leads me to this question I wanted to raise you, ask you. And then we're going to talk about Virginia for this last few weeks, um, it seems to me, uh, in terms of this election and what it means. In this context, I'm talking about, because I'm talking about a black candidate in one district in Virginia who is symbolic of most of what we've been talking about. And another black candidate who was not on the ballot last week, who is absolutely also very symbolic of what we're talking about. But this is, uh, I was coming back from yesterday. I was, like I said, I spent much of the day on campus with these young people and these adults, these alumni, these parents. Um, and, 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 and so on the way back, I was reading, um, the, 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 the new edition of the Atlantic, the new, uh, issue of the Atlantic. And there's an article by McKay Coppins called Who Killed America's Newspapers, Professor Hunter. And I really want, they're talking about global, Alden Global Capital, the secretive hedge fund gutting newsrooms and damaging democracy and how they've destroyed. It, this is one of the paragraphs says the 21st century has seen many of these generational owners flee the industry. Talking about it used to be, you know, the, 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 uh, the Bonefields of Denver, the Chandlers of L.A. who own the L.A. Times, used to be family-owned newspapers. And it starts actually with, of course, the Tribune, the Chicago Tribune and Colonel McCormick. It goes on. But he says that um, today, half of all daily newspapers in the United States are controlled by financial firms. And they're, and, and I guess these equity firms, it, help, help us understand it. And there's a point I'm going with this, but I want to, I uh, can you help us understand? I mean, they're not in the business of newspapers. They are raiding these companies and destroying them. And they had the Daily News in here, too. How does that work, Professor Hunter? It shocked the shit out of me, frankly. Oh, you muted. You muted. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was trying to correct some things backdoor. Apparently, uh, we have broken uh, the Nubian internet, so I had to do some things to get That's us good. back up. Uh, you know, some uh, multitasking. Uh, but I've, been, I've, been, I've been contemplating that very question for the last 15 to 20 years, you know, because I have to, I teach, I teach yes. journalism. Yes. And, and the question keeps coming up. What am I teaching? <laughs> what, what am I teaching and what am I preparing these students for? Because, you know, when I came into the Daily News, the Tribune owned the, was the, you know, the proprietor, you know, was the proprietor of the Daily News. We had a union, we had uh, a newspaper guild, you know, a, a newspaper union that, you know, also had a credit union. I mean, it was, it was, it was about the news. Mm -hmm. 
then Tribune sold to a billionaire who mysteriously ended up dying on a boat in a boat accident, ended up in the ocean. Then it was sold to somebody named Mort Zuckerman, who was a Canadian real estate mogul. And in my young mind, I was in my late twenties at the time. What does a billionaire, you know, real estate mogul have to do with journalism? And the moves he started making, he was bringing on editors from the from the Post because he wanted to destroy the Post. He would so he was raiding the Post, and he brought on so he made this car crash with editors from the New York Times and the Post and moving people and firing folk. And I was like. Oh, he doesn't care about journalism. He's using this paper. And then I got on the editorial board and then I really understood. And at that time that I was on the editorial board, something called the Huffington Post started. And I was like, what does Arianna Huffington have to do with, she's not a journalist and she's not paying people. She didn't have real editors. Anybody can get a byline. And then this thing called digital started taking over where, you know, where I was sitting. And I was like, oh, okay. The, the world has changed and journalism is dead. And that moment I knew. So, you know, what you're talking about has been 20 years in the making. And for us, and which is why it was important that I went through the birth of a nation and propaganda at Bernays, which is why it's important that, you know, no matter what I'm teaching, foundationally, these young people need to know that this is your responsibility to bring it back or to make sure you at least challenge and question because all of this media is bought and sold. All of it has become an arm and you brought it to the forefront. This has been longer than 20 years. It's just me knowing. When you gave us those black newspapers that told the world about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how the New York Times was doing the bidding of the government, maybe it's always been that way, you know? And maybe we need black media or at least of a media that is not bought and sold. And unfortunately, some of the, most of these papers are out of business because of the coin, you know, because they don't have enough money to fund, which is why what we're doing here is so important, which is why I'm so fierce about building with people who actually understand how to build and not, you know, for, I can't afford, okay, you can't afford, this ain't for you right now. You can't, you, you don't have a brick to bring, that's fine. You know, you're, you're not figuring out how, you know, okay, we got scholarships, whatever, how can I get in to work? Because we need all hands on deck. We need everybody not sitting back consuming, but like, how can I add to this thing? Because it will all go away and we are all subject to having this, you know, perpetrated upon us instead of being participants in the thing that, you know, so all of the stories, we're all our own journalists. We all live somewhere. There's stories that need to be told. People whose voices need to be heard. We don't have to be curated to anymore. So, you know, as you're talking about mm. it, it's, it's near and dear to my heart because I'm like, this is the thing that this is the sin that does Jezebel in. You know, we we are sitting here victimized by uh, a system that might have always had this as the intent, you know, the media arm, the propaganda arm of society. So I think we need we need you. We need trained reporters and, and to apprentice other ones. Because you're right. In fact, let me just read to you what, 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 what he says here. He says that on the surface, the answer might seem obvious to what killed journalism, as you said. Craigslist killed the classified section. Hmm. Google and Facebook swallowed up the ad market. And a procession of hapless newspaper owners failed to adapt to the digital media age, making obsolescence inevitable. This is the story we've been telling for decades about the dying local news industry, and it's not without truth. 
But what ha what's happening in Chicago and by extension, these other places is different than what you just said. It's hedge funds now. Like you said, these investors, they can run a profit. And they talk about all these papers that were running profits, Chicago, Denver, New York, all these places where they came in and stripped it. But here's the thing. This is why I say, and uh, you know, what you're doing not only continues to have value, it has more value now. Goes on to say this. Let me see if I can find the piece here where I want to find it. Because he's talking about the importance of, here, here. It says, uh, meanwhile, the trick, oh, no, no, this is not where I wanted to go. They're talking about the power of local journalists. And they're saying that without local journalists, you don't have the capacity to understand. In fact, he says, he talks about all the investigative journalists. At one, at one newspaper, I wish I could find it quickly. I won't be able to find it quickly. The uh, Actually, if I take about 30 more seconds, I can find it. Yeah, this Herald, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Oh, no, the East Bay Times in Oakland, uh, Monterey, where there was a Herald reporter. This guy who joined the, the Vallejo Times Herald in 2014, John Glidden, when he started, they had a they had a staff of about a dozen. He started as a general assignment reporter covering local crime and community centers. Pay was terrible. Work wasn't glamorous, but he loved the job. And as a citizen of Vallejo, he saw his job was important. When the City Hall reporter left a few months later, he picked up that beat. When the, when the, uh, uh, the school's reporter left, he picked up that beat. He had heard rumblings about the paper's owners when he first took the job. He hadn't been paying attention. Now he's feeling the pinch. Then these hedge fund, New York hedge fund people who we start calling the, the lizard people, he eventually, this one reporter was charged with covering the city's police, schools, government, courts, hospitals, and businesses. He burned the hell out. He gained 100 pounds, started grinding his teeth at night. He couldn't follow leads. He couldn't track down stories. Now scandals are exploding. The importance, as you know better than I ever will, of the fourth estate of trained reporters is to hold power. <coughs> and so this is the last thing I'll say. And I want you please help comment on this because it really ties together with what we saw in Virginia this recent election. He says the consequences can influence national politics as well. An analysis by Politico found that Donald Trump performed best during the 2016 election in places with limited access to local news. Help us understand why reporters are important, Professor. Oh, I mean, you said it. You just said it. And, you know, I felt like Chicken Little most days because I'm like, y'all don't see y'all don't see this yeah, to the on. point where to the point where when I started, you know, it's about seven years ago, I created this this thing, you know, before there was narrative Anubia called The Hub. And it's still yeah. so but I'm one person, you know, <laughs> trying to answer this call. And I have students, and so you know it's 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 working now. You know we got said working Cedric and and Brazil yes. contributing, Alan Orr's contributing. We got the Haitian Times now connecting, and we just uh, had a meeting last week with this brother. Not he's not a brother brother, but he's a brother from another mother yes. without melanin yes. uh, named Daniel, who created this app called Presto, which trains fifth graders mm. how to. So the fifth graders now. So we what we what we're engaging with him is to get fifth graders in different countries to contribute to the hub. So every month we're going to feature the writings of fifth graders uh, who are reporting on things happening in their community. And he has taught them how to even make a little magazine from an eight by 11 sheet of paper to inspire storytelling. It's a simple app. You, you got the headlines, you got the picture, you got everything's automated and then you drop in your story and it's short form, but, I'm like, if if we can bring this to Nubia with our young people, yes, 
So, but I first need, you know, I need, you know, there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes, but that has been on my mind for the last 15 years. Like what, what do we do about this? Because we need that. And when you brought that story to the forefront with those black journalists, particularly yes. that, that journalist who had a medical, you know, background yes. who was like, nah, radiation doesn't work that way. Cleveland, no and question. Let me, let me talk about how we need all of that uh, in our community. So yeah, this, or else, I mean, this is a weird, yeah, how they yeah. get societies, right? You know, the scribes, the That's teachers, right. and, and, and the journalists, that's who they attack. Who did Trump attack first? Right. The media. The enemy you know? of the people. Which and, is and, and, they, and they went for it by giving them billions of dollars of free advertising. It's like, I'm sitting here like, y'all, are y'all that stupid? No, but they're, they're that greedy. You know better than I do. None of that's why we call it commercial news entertainment media. They're selling ad, it's ad revenue, it's eyeballs, it's clicks. They're not journalists. And people say, I'm a journalist. Okay, you're an individual. Opinion writers. No, what mm -hmm. this article and what your whole career is showing us. And now I'm so thrilled to hear about these young people because as you were talking, I was reminded for the first time in far too long of the role in elementary and high school of the student paper, the student reporter. Here's the, here's the news in the school. So the young people getting trained in how to interview people. And of course, even right now at Howard with this, the Blackburn takeover, yes. a conflict that has emerged between the student newspaper and administration on the idea that, well, this is misinformation. Don't, no, don't you turn into somebody trying. These young people are being trained to be investigative journalists. And then when they graduate, you want to give them the curse of the good job. And so for every Aisha Rasko, one of my former students who is now, you know, covering the White House and on NPR and doing all kinds of things, I mean, Neil Lehrer and all that. I mean, you know, I look at Aisha and there are a lot of people like her. Shout out to Jennifer Thomas and some of the folks over at Howard Journalism who've been trading these folks, Ingrid Banks and others, you know. But there are others who simply did not learn how to write well, who didn't learn the basics of investigative journalism, who managed to get through school and who get jobs. And then you read and you're wincing. And it isn't just the writers, it's the editors. You catching all the errors in the paper. I mean, the New York Times of today and the New York Times of 20 years ago, and I've been a subscriber now for almost 30 years. It's like, these ain't the same newspapers. Uh, I can't even, I used to um, prepare for my show when I was on the radio 15 years ago in New York. And it was easy to prepare for my show. I, there were three websites that I went to. I could take the first paragraph and all the information because that's how I teach it. Mm. You know, the first graph have, it has to have the who, what, when, where. You know, no one has to should be ha having to search through your piece to find out what the hell is this story about. You know, now they've reduced it to the clickbait headlines, and then you can read a whole entire story. The headline will say one thing. You will not get any of that information from that headline. I just did it yesterday. I was looking up um, Ahmaud Arbery. I was talking to my students about Ahmaud Arbery. And good journalists in that first graph will recap what happened to him, who he was and what happened. Huh. I'm having to go through, I think it was like CBS or something, a whole entire story. And I still don't get that one paragraph to tell me what how Ahmaud Arbery got killed. And I'm what, like, what is that? What 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 is that shift about, Professor Hunter? Because now you got me thinking about it. Like you say, you, New York Times, it may be a full page article. It's like you got to go to the third column halfway down to get the thesis. It's like what? Why because now? Especially online, it's about time spent on that site. That algorithm triggers Damn. a certain amount of uh, you know. So now you can go to your advertiser. People spent twenty minutes for fifteen minutes on this, on this article. You and just made it make sense. You just made it make sense. You know. You just made it make sense. It's 
all being driven by capitalism. So this, I mean, now, now and so let, let's bring it home. Virginia. In Virginia, in this election, we talked a little bit about Jersey and the lost cause candidate who will never concede because concession isn't just about who won an election. It's about saying, I will never quit. In Virginia, this is the first governor's race where this white nationalist, Youngkin, beat Northern. It's the first governor's race since all these new voting laws that were passed by the Democratic majorities in Virginia that were elected in 2019. They repealed the state voter ID law. They enacted 45 days of no excuse absentee voting. They made election day a state holiday. They enacted automatic voter registration. Do you know who presides over the Virginia legislature when it is in session? It is not the governor. It is the person that Ida B. Wells would be busting her head against the wall to say, do you see what the white nationalists did? And in this case, opposition researched that the soft white nationalists in the governor's house who got caught with blackface unleashed on the brother uh, the person who presides over that uh, house of delegates who uh signed out who was there when the vote was taken who's taking all the pictures and that would be a young man named justin fairfax you see let's let's, let's take our time with this for a minute okay we're going to invoke out of bill wells you remember justin fairfax the rapist oh is he now rapist yeah. you know he had he had sex with uh with the sister in Boston, uh, and then he had sex with, before that when he was an undergrad with the sister at Duke, and they both claimed that he raped him. Yeah, okay. Uh, man, when did we find out about that? Well, that was after Ralph uh, Northern got caught with them blackface pictures in his college yearbook. That ain't me. You behind blackface. We know it's you. He said, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, 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 I'm going to stick a banana in the tailpipe, except this gonna be, his name's going to be Justin Fairfax, and we're about to drop this file that we've been keeping just in case we had to put this hammer on him. I thought y'all was all Democrats. Well, I am a Democrat, but I'm a soft white nationalist, too. You saw the blackface. Not only that, <laughs> the damn Attorney General, because the Attorney General, Mark Herring, he was in blackface because he was going to try to leapfrog over Justin Fairfax, but they put Justin Fairfax. Some people saying, are you, a are you an apologist for Justin Fairfax? Pause. Press pause. Don't get mad, get smart. First of all, Justin Fairfax said, unlike Bill Clinton, I did have sexual relation with the women. I sure did. With Vanessa Tyson in Boston and with Meredith Wilson at Duke. So what did Justin Fairfax do? He said, uh, because the white boys in the Virginia legislature, we need to have an investigation. That would also be known as CRT, CRT. Why? Because they saw the black cloud coming. Because if the white boy had stepped down, Fairfax is the governor for three old years almost. Two years, two years and some change. And he's running for re-election last week. But Ralph Northern, to save his own political skin, weaponized his whiteness and that fear of the black rapist and stuck it on Justin Fairfax. But did he have, yeah, he did have sex. Well, guess what? Fairfax now fighting for his political life. What does he do? He requests investigations. He says, will y'all please, I will cooperate fully. He writes to two district attorneys, friends. Y'all remember that. In uh, Suffolk County, Boston, he writes to Rachel Rollins and says, Rachel Rollins, uh, D.A. Rollins in Boston, will you please open an investigation? Will you sit with Dr. Tyson, who's now a professor out in California? Please, I will, I will anything need, please. The prosecutor in Boston says, I will be happy to. 
I'm going to open an investigation. This the man, now if you're a rapist, he don't want no investigation. He's going to be like Bill Clinton, try to, you know, prevaricate. And he's going to be like Donald Trump. He's going to be like, no, no, please. Why? They trying to crucify. Yes, I had sex with her. Yes, we had, yes, please. Oh, by the way, uh, Rachel Rollins, what is her name? Oh, black woman. Black woman. For whatever reasons, Dr. Tyson decides she's going to talk to uh, the white people at uh, CBS. As does Mary Watson. They're going to go talk to the to, to the to the people about what happened to them. But the DA is like, I'm ready. I'm going to find out if there's any charges to press. Fairfax is like, would you plead? Because there ain't no charges. But I want you to investigate me as if there are charges. Find them. And then he writes to the Durham DA at Duke. Because remember, this same sister said Corey Maggett had sex with her, raped her. But that fell out of the press very quickly. Why? Because they got a little white nationalist basketball coach down there named Mike Krzyzewski. He going to protect his profit margin. Mm-hmm. So, but Fairfax writes the DA in in in, in Durham. Uh, the DA in Durham, what's her name? Uh, Satara DeBerry. DeBerry, that sounds like a black name. Because she a black woman too. All of a sudden, we don't want to talk to the DA. Okay, but you talk to CBS, but you talk to the press. You talking about, but you don't want to talk to the law and the man who you accused said, please, will y'all please investigate? Not only that, he takes two lie detector tests. Not only that, he sues CBS for defamation. The case he lost in the district court. It was uh, affirmed on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. It just got affirmed this past July after he had lost the uh, primary in Virginia to a to a, 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 a person with the foul odor of the Clintons named Terry McAuliffe. You put the worst possible candidate you could put up against these white nationalists. And, and so, but they but they said you can't, they have something in the law called actual malice. So if you can't prove that CBS knew different when they interviewed these sisters and basically drug you through the mud and have your name up on the poster as a rapist, read Ida Bell Wells Barnett, Lynch Law, in all its phases. The white nationalists activated all of them lost cause deep in their gut. I don't know what CRT is, but what I know of it, I don't like it. You know, them black men rapists. And, and who threw them under the bus? Northam to save his blackface wearing ass. And so the story of last week is Justin Fairfax. Now, let's go to uh, I didn't hear anybody talking about Justin Fairfax. Of course you didn't. Why? Because you don't have journalists no more. You don't have people doing real media. You turn on national media and all they're going to say is, like they said during the primaries, when Justin Fairfax, out of frustration, said, Terry McAuliffe, you treated me like George Floyd or Emmett Till on the debate stage. You went to the investor, you went to tarnishing me with the same, what they used to call 19th century, the tar brush. When I have been screaming from the top of my lungs since the day Northern and them let that go so he could stay in office, investigate it all. I'll take a thousand lie detector tests. I want the prosecutor to try to prosecute me. Will y'all please go on the record? But you, once that's done in this dumbass country, it's done because the fear. Read out of Wales on this. But now let's go to a much smaller election. This was uh, the 91st district in the House of Delegates in Virginia. The election was just called yesterday. You have a black man, the first black man to represent the 91st district, A.C. Cordoza, Air Force veteran, New Yorker who moved to Virginia. He defeated Martha Mulger, 
by 94 votes in a three-way race. It was a libertarian in the race. 94 votes. His election flipped the Virginia House of Delegates. It is now controlled by the White Nationalist Party. Uh, uh, Cardoza is a cybersecurity expert. He uh, is black. Phenotype. All skin folk and kin folk. You know what he ran on? It's harder for people. Oh, I can't even do his voice because it's such a corny ass voice. It, it, it's, it's harder for people to pay their bills. You pay your bills. And so I believe that there shouldn't be tax increases. <laughs> I, I also think that, you know, I can't change Roe versus Wade. It's the law. That's what the white nationalists say because they've stacked the courts and they know they're going to overturn Roe. I can't change it. It's the law. But I do um, support reproductive care, but I would terminate, I would vote to shorten the time that a woman uh, can terminate a pregnancy. Meanwhile, the white nationalist Yunkin, who won the election, he gonna try to do what they did in Texas. He already got caught on tape with it. In fact, they caught this guy, Cardozo, uh, Cordoza, this black dude who won by 94 votes and helped flip now the white nationalists in Virginia. So those of you in Virginia, <laughs> yeah. You are in the land of cotton and old times there are not only not forgotten, they nursed that lost cause like a grudge so they could get it close enough to steal. They, he said, you know, Biden and Pelosi are, are out of touch. Biden and Pelosi are out of touch. And so I'm running general ignorance from people who don't have local newspapers anymore, who don't rely on something other than clickbait on the internet for their information, who now couldn't tell you what's in a bill if they try to pass it, who don't understand what's going on. And so now you've got a black face and there were some black people, I'm sure, down there. Oh, by the way, uh, his district, the 91st district, that covers Port Comfort, Virginia, as my friend, Dr. Kalita Fairfax, uh, Kalita Nichols Fairfax would remind us, no relation to Justin. Kalita would tell us, Coco would tell us, because she was one of the people who helped get the historical marker up. She does a lot of that work in Virginia. Port Comfort is where those Africans came from that they anchor in the 1619 project with. That's Jamestown. <laughs> Talk about coming full circle. Virginia had 40% of all the enslaved Africans in the colonies, and they provided the most eloquent liars. I'm sorry, spokespeople for freedom. Jefferson, Virginia, Washington, Virginia, Madison, Virginia, Monroe, Virginia. Freedom and justice, freedom and justice. Hey, uh, cut that grass. Hey, chop that bay, uh, chop that wood, get that cotton out of my field, get that tobacco right out of my field. So my point is that. Well, as we were talking about earlier, all skin folks and kin folk, there were some Negroes who voted. And not only that, there were some Africans who likely voted as well. What does that mean? I'm talking about Africans who aren't from the United States. I'm talking about Africans from other parts of the world, including the continent of Africa. How did the Ethiopian community vote in Virginia for this? Was there a larger percentage that vote for the white nationalist party? Yes. Why? Perhaps because of what's going on in Ethiopia right now. What? What is that? What does that got to do with Virginia? Well, you want the white nationalists in power because they are more likely to leave certain things alone. For example, the Trump administration. Under the Trump administration, you know who they took off the, the terrorist watch list of countries supporting terror? Sudan. Because Sudan with little help from Jared, the incompetent, and uh, the rest of the crew was one of the countries that agreed to recognize Israel. And so they took Sudan off the terrorist watch list. Why is that important? 
Because the guy who was there now, the army general who they propping up, Abdel Fattah uh, uh, Burnham, the one who they had the massive march here in D.C. last weekend because the Sudanese are like, what the hell's going on? The army didn't have a coup. You know who they sending down there now to try to get him out? Israel. Israel is down there. Egypt is down there. Egypt is down there trying to talk to him because they want Sudan to be an ally against Ethiopia because they're building something called a Grand Ethiopian Dam that's going to dam the Nile. And Egypt wants to blow it up. Al-Sisi and them. Al-Sisi, who is he? He's the leader of Egypt. Oh, they elected him, right? Well, he was the damn coup leader. Y'all got to understand how international politics affects domestic politics. You've got Ethiopians in Virginia, for example, or rather, I should say, uh, Tigray folk in Ethiopia. And I don't pretend to know all of what's going on in Ethiopia, but guess who doesn't also know, pretend to know? The Ethiopians in the diaspora who are looking sometimes at ethnicity over national identity. Mm -hmm. And the guy who was the prime minister, uh, uh, Abi Ahmed, it, some stories, it ain't no good guys. But the West has now begun to turn its back on him. Why? The damn uh, Tigray army, the Liberation Front, might be in Addis by the time we finish talking today. That's how close some of them are. But when you listen to Haile Greenman, I spent a lot of time sitting there with Haile, just listening to him talk to these other Ethiopians and then watching stuff because I'm trying to make sense of it. But guess what? So is he. And his lament, that's another reason I love this brother so much. His lament is that he's a Pan-Africanist. Can you put the, the, the fate of Black people above the fate of your particular ethnic group? What we've seen throughout Africa is the West exacerbates ethnic tensions. That's one of the reasons why Holly uh, made uh, the movie Adwa, because you see all the different groups. But guess who else now, because of what's going on with the Tigray in Ethiopia, have jumped out? The Oromo, <laughs> the other ethnic groups. You're going to fracture Ethiopia, but guess what? The West don't care. Israel don't care about the Sudan, because they got a deal where they need air power. And so just like in Djibouti, where they didn't put a big military base, they want one uh, in Sudan as well. The Russians don't care. They just signed like a 25-year lease on Port Sudan. The damn Turks don't care. Why? They trying to get into the Red Sea in the Horn. So they looking at these African countries as points of entry for their aspirations. And so how does that tie to Virginia? Well, if it's the white nationalist party in charge in America, they like, we don't need to deal with none of that shit. Bring our money home. Ethiopians is like, okay, I'm going to vote for you, white nationalists. Some of them. I'm going to vote for you, white nationalists. Why? because I got a better chance of getting what I want for my very specific group over there if I vote for you over here. Doesn't make them bad people, but you gotta understand the politics of what happened in Virginia last week. Now, another community that would look and hear uh, messages like low taxes, stay out of people's business, build your small business, don't have to pay your employees, us kind of, we don't want unions organized. I don't know. I think that would be a message that would appeal to a lot of black people if it were not couched with white nationalism. But if you come from a place where white nationalism isn't an overt factor, you can sit up like a fool with a damn submachine gun looking assault rifle over your chest. And then, oh, wait, Winsome, where is she from? Jamaica. Jamaica. The point is now, here's the problem, though. African people here in the United States. I'm not talking about you foundational black Americans. I'm not talking about you African descendants of slavery. I'm not talking about you engaged in this form of silly blackface white nationalist patriot cosplay to go against all the Jamaicans or all the Ethiopians. What I'm trying to explain is what happens when you allow the social structure to define your identity, to ascribe your social identity into your body so that what you're looking at 
is a war that only benefits white nationalism because in Virginia, in Virginia, where Terry McAuliffe, with all the smell of the Clintons and stink of the Clinton, remember that was the fun, that was the bag man for the Clintons. Terry McAuliffe, who, who bodied Justin, uh, Justin Fairfax by ignoring him because they, you know, you, you people don't read and don't study nothing and don't follow anything. You just say, hmm, right, bad. Oh, okay. Well, to protect black women, does that include the two black women DAs who said they would investigate when they were called on by the black? Oh, this is that intersectional stuff. No problem. But the point is this, McAuliffe won 200,000 more votes than Northam did when he won the 2017 election in a blowout. He got more than 600,000 votes than he did in 2013 when he beat Coachinelli. So wait a minute. The Democrats tell people, if we get turnout, we win. Turnout was up in Virginia based on all them laws y'all passed. It worked. So you know who's scrambling now? The white <laughs> nationalist party because they have run their entire lost cause thing on voter suppression, except it was the opposite of voter suppression in Virginia. Footnote, these dumb Dora mm, <laughs> are now saying that they're elected. They're going to restore democracy in Virginia by rolling back all that stuff. This is what stupid, see? <laughs> well, I ain't voting. All the parties are the same. But if you live in Virginia, you about to find out some shit. <laughs> You know, after round, you know, after round and found out. You know, after round and you about to find out why. Because not only did they run some surgical black candidates in places like the place around Richmond, Port Comfort, and them, like this cat, Cordoza, and some of y'all went there and pulled the lever because you saw the skin color and confused that for mentality. Not only was voter turnout up, you know how it was it was up more in the same thing in Jersey with Phil Murphy. The white nationalists, they made their primal cry, say your pain. And they came out of the hills with that lost cause, rebel yell, damn y'all mentality. And they voted in such a high number that they literally overwhelmed the increased number of people who voted against them. So now we know what we've been saying, Professor Hunter, haven't we been saying now for almost a year and a half? Now we know what's going to happen in 2022. And in 2024, and when this little settler project implodes, you can look back at last week and say one more brick. But I'm sorry, not one more brick, one more pickaxe at this already rickety structure called federalism. But if you don't understand it, it's not because we don't have the capacity to understand. We don't have the investment of time needed. This is why we have to understand what's going on. And we had to take our time. That's why Nubia narrative, that's why the hub, that's why these spaces that are where you're training people to do this kind of thinking work and then communicate must displace all this. Every pundit on the panelist pick because they're going to argue with somebody else kind of stuff that we experienced at Howard when MSNBC came and did that black in America. How does it feel to be a problem panel? And we punched through it in five minutes because you can't allow the social structure to dictate how you consume information, how you think about your politics. And so I, I think that's that's really um, that's I think it's probably all I wanted to say about that. Um, but in terms of of Kanye. We can kind of bring it to stop where we where we began. Kanye's comments to me really, for me, begin to remind us of why not only this space is important, but why we must now commit 
to doing some protracted, very deliberate, joyous, enjoyable, reaching, stretching, growing study about the nature and process of memory and what it means to keep memory. Because Kanye is clearly very bright, also very confused. And so when you put that combination together in a country and in a society where there is very little space for thinking through things, it can be deadly. And our people will be the ones that we attack. Not on my watch. <laughs> not on your watch. No, not, not on my watch. Not on Hunter's watch. And I'm, <laughs> I'm a living witness to that. No question to nope, that. Nope. No question. Oh, uh, you know, we're going to keep fighting. And, you know, I'm just in incredibly humbled by, you know, as I'm looking back in the chat. And again, we got a bandwidth issue, but that's a good problem. because that that Yeah, broke, we, we, man, we, we broke, broke it again. We broke something. Yeah. Uh, you know, so we're going to work. I'm, I'm going to scream on some folks, make sure that uh, this doesn't happen again. But, you know, this is what this looks like when you are you know, thirsty for the knowledge that you bring every week, Dr. Carr. And, you know, the bricks are, are coming. You know, we got to do a whole Bob Moses thing that, you know, we just to play that. Yes. We, we got to do, you know, some musical thing to, to yes. you know, uh, augment what Cornell West is bringing, which I appreciate. He's about to do a gospel piece uh, in yeah. narrative as well. So, we, you know, we are, you know, we are building and this is what it looks like. I'm committed for the next 20 years to make sure this foundational level is done but you. that's what that looks like right and you, like. you get up every day and on mondays that thing has turned into an incredible thing i just got a text while we were on with dr senyata uh she's going to deal with the yoni uh and i was like the yoni uh -oh. okay uh -oh. all right we're going to do we're going to get into the yoni verse Look. listen fellas don't be scared Look. don't be scared come I'm on a, in i'm gonna tell you right now that yeah you already dr. know dr Ahmed is no joke the two of y'all together I'm not sure that the internet won't break even at the thought of y'all gonna on the <laughs> Oh my God. And we're just at the precipice of, you know, because Woo! when I talked to her, I thought about the um, Elijah Muhammad live to eat. Yes. And I said, you know, 2021 and where we're going beyond requires a hundred years from now. We, we still got these bodies. We got to learn some things. We got to unlearn some things and her coming at it through an allopathic training Ooh. as well as five generations of healing training witch doctory and all of that uh yes. has given us you know i'm looking at the world completely different and she's uh completely straightened out my digestive system uh with one with one lesson so thank you <laughs> thank you that, dr Thomas. that is crazy oh my gosh no this is this is the yeah. world we're building yeah I, 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 I should mention a couple other things just one other thing just very quickly very quickly yes. the blackburn takeover as we said persists uh yesterday the president of the university dr frederick gave his state of the university address and some of you all probably saw the clip that went viral. Uh, the last person who asked him a question, it was very, uh, very, I say managed. I mean, they had, Steve, Steve. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to impute. Okay. What, all right, all right. No, 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 no. But the thing about ancestors is we ain't in charge. So the they, they had shut it down. It's okay. This is the last one. They, they showed it on YouTube, live streamed it. And then somebody came to the microphone. It could not be denied. And said, excuse me, I just want to say, I'm in support. I'm here to listen. I just want to, and that was Debbie Allen in a fierce, uh, fierce like electric blue thing. I don't was a boy in a full coat. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to, and you saw the president was like, oh, uh -oh. okay, okay, that 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 that's about as close. That's about as sure as unscripted is. Like evidence that it was the thing was unscripted. But the thing that caught my eye later on was the young people posted on social media about a mm, sixty second. Uh, 90 second exchange with the Allen sisters 
on the steps of the College of Fine Arts, the dean of the college, wow. Felicia Rashad, who's there every day doing that work, and her sister, who walked over, Debbie Allen, walked over to the protesters, while to the students and alumni stuff and says, I'm here to listen, I'm here to support y'all, but I want to hear what's going on. Then she walks back to Fine Arts, and she's standing on the porch there in front of Fine Arts, the Chadwick Boseman School of Fine Arts. Uh, Chad Boseman, by the way, participated in takeovers, but at any rate, the point is this. Um, the reporter that gets to some people on, this is the value reporting again, Professor, and he says, uh, so what do you think? Debbie Allen says, I'm here to listen. You know, I'm just trying to. And then Dean Rashad jumps in and says, now, what happens when uh, they meet their demands and they're not satisfied? And her sister looks at it and says, oh, they met their demands? And Dean Rashad, in her best, Claire Huxtable, come on, let's go inside. <laughs> y'all gotta watch it. <laughs> you gotta watch. And I'm saying the ancestors, y'all keep look that state of the university address was characteristically thorough. It you saw a vision of Howard in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, eight years into the Frederick presidency. There was a whole discussion, you know, in this of how they're gonna spend uh, a billion point two or more of two billion dollars to build a new medical complex and create all these new buildings. And as I was sitting there. I was reminded of Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk as I was sitting there in my house watching, because obviously I wasn't invited to the conversation, which I'm not mad about. I'm a member of the faculty and y'all know your university is the faculty and the students. Everybody else is there in support roles. And, and, and I think that's a lesson that universities are beginning. Uh, well, they want to reject it because universities like apparently uh, newspapers are hedge funds many of them and the ones who want to be successful are looking at that model and i think howard has some of that conversation and i think that's what some of these getting rid of these trustee positions is about because you don't want nobody in the room who's going to slow that process down and i'm not imputing bad motive to anyone i don't question anybody's heart i don't question anybody's motive all we can go is on what you say and what you do and when we do that then the question i asked and i asked this yesterday when i was sitting there listening to the students and, and, and alumni and stuff and i asked a public question i said you know my question Realizing that I think we all want the same thing for our people. I don't question your motives. I just can always go on what you say and what you do. And based on what you say and what you do, my question would be not why aren't uh, everybody here? Because there's some a lot of people who are around this thing now. Some student athletes, members of the Divine Nine have been sleeping in the tents. There are more and more tents. I said, my question isn't why uh, everybody isn't here. My question is, why aren't you here? Why, I mean, my question, my question isn't why, where is everybody? Because it's a lot of people. But my question is, why aren't you here? Because we're all on the same team, right? There's no adversarial relationship in this. But anyway, the presentation was excellent, but I'm thinking about Monk and I'm thinking about Miles Davis. Why? Because in those two brothers' practices, it wasn't just the notes they played. It was the silences between the notes. You got to be able to hear for the silences, too. And when you start talking about the thing that's going to be built, what it also does, and the minute you say it, it becomes obvious, well, what about the thing that's here now? Is not this articulation of this gleaming city to come a critique of the city that exists right now? And is, is, this, not, is, is this challenge that we're facing right now, not just at Howard, the students at Atlanta University Center did a protest. The president of the university met with them a couple of days in. A&T students said something. Even Hampton students said something. You know, Howard and Hampton take that serious. I don't have a dog in that fight, but I kind of watch it and laugh. But the, the idea is that it isn't just Howard. It's all our HBCUs. And a lot of it is about chronic underfunding uh, out of the social structure, public or private. Very difficult 
to do, you know, to do a lot of this work. And it's also the concept of the university generally, particularly these hedge fund universities, the Ivy Leagues and others who got billions of dollars of endowments. And then the other ones who may go out of business, which is why another reason we have this space we deve we've developed and are continuing to develop this space because we're going to jailbreak the whole concept of university. Because I think ultimately that concept is probably unsustainable because most people don't go to universities. But all that having been said, the state university address was extremely informative. But I'm also listening for the silences because the aspiration reveals the distance between the aspiration and the thing as it is. And these young people are responding not just about housing conditions, but affordable housing, not just about uh, being able to participate in listening tours and conversations, but shared governance in terms of faculty, alumni and trustee positions and student positions, not just in terms of the question of not being punished for participating in this uh, protest, which, you know, the president has said he's not for punishing them, which is, you know, important. You got to recognize that and celebrate that. But for the idea that the idea that even being punished would be something to be articulated in the first place to be pushed back on. A lot of it is about the reaction as much as it is about the action itself. We have to remember, we have to remember that governance relationships are based on the outcome of trying to create community. Yeah. And so if you don't want your children sleeping in tents outside because they feel like they have to, nobody said, hey, y'all, let's go sleep outside for a month and it's 30 degrees tonight. If if you wouldn't want yours, then unless you don't see them as your children, and I absolutely see those children as my children, which means you know what I'm saying, and, and that's a governance thing. Don't be part of the social structure unnecessarily. You ain't got that part. So that that's and you, and you can't talk about the future until you fix what's what's broken now. It's like building a house on a shaky foundation. It's like uh putting a new wine in the old wineskins, you know, to borrow a phrase from the Bible. And I feel like most of us, you know, have not been conditioned to build on solid foundation. We don't understand, you know, I got to talk to that great architect at Howard about how they built the pyramids, right? And that's that's going to be part of, you know, the presentation when we get into the meta nature with, with yeah. Mario Beatty, because I feel like you got to know first how the pyramids were built, how the, the structures were built, because that's what we're doing here. That's right. But you got to understand that first layer. Like I said, I'm committed 20 years to make sure this first layer, this first foundational the layer is solid so that whatever comes next whoever comes next is just easy it's like putting legos together it's just easy it's but just you can't easy. go forward with a vision if you ain't fix these kids are intense they are intense conversation about 20 years from now it's just it it, it sounds crazy that's actually. right that's right well 20 years from now they're going to be building something Maybe they have, we maybe have to start. We'll be right back here. There'll be another Blackburn takeover. Some right. well, 20 years ago, you know, you talk about Chad with Bozeman. Y'all ain't, right. you ain't fixed the problem. You ain't fixed the problem. Well, that, that is, that is, if we, if we can, if we can breathe. I mean, I forgot. I should, I should have mentioned that. Cause y'all know they in Glasgow for the climate summit. And I should have mentioned this South Africa. That was the other African country that came to mind. South Africa. Uh, who was the countries that pledged to give them uh, billions of dollars? Um, eight and a half billion mm. from the United States, the UK, France, Germany, the European Union. They pledged last week, even as people are in the streets in Glasgow saying this ain't enough. They pledged to give eight and a half billion dollars to South Africa to get them off of coal. Now, coal provides 90 percent of the energy in South Africa right now. There's a coal company that is the world's largest polluter. It's called Exum, E-K-S-O-M. So you know who's going to get that money 
they're going to pay these polluters to transfer the clean energy. That's where Exxon's going. That's where Gulf's going. But guess who didn't sign the global agreement last week? Joe Biden. And guess why he didn't sign it? Because he said, it has been reported, that he didn't want to offend Joe Manchin. So now this cosplay coal miner who's got millions of dollars in coal industry in in, in, damn, uh, in West Virginia where there are no billionaires. I guess he's trying to be the first one. This cosplay coal miner is not just choking the air out for the people in the United States, which was always going to be the world. His ass has got an influence overseas <laughs> where they're going to give South Africa money to transfer. It don't mean your people can't make money, but this cosplay coal miner, that's why they pay, I guess yesterday, I guess last night or they passed the billion too. Uh, the the, yeah. the the bill, but thanks to Joe, Kristen Cinema, and them fifty white nationalists, including the white nationalist uh, uh, Tim Scott, you are willing to literally kill people to get your payoff. So this election in Virginia, the close call in in New Jersey, and the, and of course in Virginia, the white nationalists won with the help of the Democratic Party because mm -hmm. the Democratic Party liberalized all the voting rules so this ain't just about if we turn out we win no now you gotta turn the hell out listen to cliff and latosha and them listen to people i ain't voting okay then so do you want to just take the poison now or would you rather take a knife and just slit your own throat do you understand these people don't want you participating in the process no it's not perfect you know what the alternative is though wait till they roll back all the laws and then, then it's Hunger Games for real, because they always gonna have you entertaining them, dribbling basketball, killing each other, whatever. Oh, Professor Hunter, thank you for thank new, you. the narrative, oh, for new year. We building the world. And thank y'all patiently uh allowing us to grow through um and you know helping us get there. Uh all the thank you for breaking it. They yeah. broke it. Yeah. That's why I mean this is good, this is growing pains. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love you. Uh, immensely, and uh, I'll I'll see you. I'm I'm always in the chat on on uh, office hours because I love watching it. Yeah, you know, I love different it. things sitting here because you got to man different things and make sure. Yes. So thank you, Uraeus, for for picking up that baton and and uh, holding it down on Mondays uh, with Dr. Carr on uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of y'all.